welcome to one more extra special, extra wonderful episode of Normandy FM Final Fantasy Ten Two Edition. This is technically our last episode of Final Fantasy Ten Two. Uh, we we as always, uh, co-host Eric Van Allen alongside co-host Kenneth Shepard are here to talk about. Final Fantasy X-2, but this is the last time we will talk specifically about this entry in the X series, and Ken, how you feeling? You know, I was feeling pretty good. This should be like a very like celebratory occasion, because we are about to wrap up, you know, the best Final Fantasy uh, retrospective, <laughs> and um, but just before this call started, or I mean, before this recording started, rather, uh, we were talking about all the other Final Fantasy X things the Square Enix has put out since, and it just like brought down my mood to like a level of cynicism that I should not oh. have about Final Fantasy X-2. The best one. Um, oh, oh, so, no. you know, we got to talk about some good stuff today so we can get the bad stuff like as far away from my brain as possible. <laughs> as far away until we have to record our final episode of the Final Fantasy X season, uh, which will mm. be one episode collective bringing together uh, all the accompanying works of Final Fantasy X, which is uh, Last Mission uh, 2.5 and uh final fantasy 10 will which is probably I, I know we give kingdom hearts a lot of shit for the way they name things over there but uh final fantasy 10 what are you doing with your numbering what's going on here it's, it's just a square it's thing crazy uh-huh square what are you doing y'all gotta calm down but in the realm of 10 before we jump down any holes before we head down tumbling towards the climax of the story we got we got a few things we got to clear up uh these are a few more of the side missions a few more of the hot spots we could have hit before we jump in the hole but these are the ones that are let's say end gamey these -hmm. are the ones that are you, you know you level up for these you you skill out for these you develop the cheeses for these <laughs> uh we save these just for the finale because like we've said before uh ken and i don't have enough hours in the day to commit to this kind of stuff and uh you know maybe maybe one day theoretically one day i might be interested in in doing some of this stuff and hitting some of the end game stuff that uh that seems really interesting, but uh, we don't got time like that. So we, most of this stuff we're coming to either out of previous experience. I think Ken, you have played some of the stuff in the past, mm. um, and, or or we have YouTubed uh, things that mm-hmm. are obviously like the 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 final stages of the Via Infinito and things like that. So we will get to all of that today, but we'll start with a pretty simple one, uh, which is the Jose Temple, uh, where the Machine Faction. Uh, have built some kind of super weapon and they're saying that we should fight it so they can make it more powerful uh this is kind of part of a mini game that we have not really engaged with up to this point because it involves a lot of the digging that happens in beacon l desert Mm -hmm. and we have not done more digging than we had to because every once in a while when you dig you have a chance of digging up parts that can make this thing more powerful and also end up ruining your completion percentage uh, which is kind of strange, <laughs> maybe one of the well, weirder parts. It's it's more the, as I understand it, like it's not about like walling off completion percentage. It just makes it like much more difficult at like the beginning because like this is something that gets progressively more powerful each time you find one of those things. Yes. And so like you're supposed to fight it in like multiple stages, and it just gets you know progressively more powerful. So it's not like it's something that gates off percentage in the way that, like you know missing something in one of the other chapters might. Yeah. 
but it does yeah. it does make it much more difficult to start if you have been doing that. And like even the guide that we were using to get through, like will repeatedly mention. I think in the beacon section, it's like, do not go digging yet. Do not mm-hmm. go doing mm-hmm. that yet. Making it where you can keep all of, all the fights that you have to do with the thing, you know, for you know for the end game stuff when when you have leveled up properly because it gets you know very powerful by the end. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean. I did the first of these fights just to see what this mm-hmm. was. Uh, to be honest, it was a pretty straightforward fight, mm-hmm. pretty easy fight. Um, I imagine that thing probably gets more difficult as you mm-hmm. put more stuff on it. But it's also, again, one of those fights where you can tell that this is put in there as kind of an endgame combat challenge for people who want it. Not necessarily something that has a significant amount of story uh, right. importance. So we're... If it feels like we're breezing through it, that's because this is breezy. There's not much mm-hmm. here. <laughs> There's no meat on this bone. Uh, but in Beaconel, there is something a little bit meatier. We're going to go deal with the Cactar Nation, finally. Mm. Finally, finally. We show up and Nadala tells us the Cactar Nation is under attack. This is after we have kind of gathered together all of our Cactar friends. Uh, we the, the long-sleeping fiend has woken up. We need to find the rest of the ten gatekeepers to raise... A magical barrier and some weird weird stuff stares to happen uh Ken why don't you take us through this because you are the one who has more experience with some of the cactar stuff that happens here yeah it starts out with like there's a you know the fury of fiends that are coming in and like Mar- Marlena like the kind of like leader cactus cactor thing you just basically just hyper beam to keep them at bay and like fight them off the while find... flare yeah <laughs> pretty much so you go find the rest of the gatekeepers. Yeah, like two of them are in Kilika, one's in Gagazette. And the last one, all the other gatekeepers have to help you look in this uh, dungeon that's been in like the back of the Cactor Nation area, mm-hmm. like sealed off. And so you go in there, and that's where the like the rogue Cactor, as they describe them, uh, go up. Like, you know, the, the bad kids, the bad, the bad influences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The basement Cactor. Yeah. And so you fight them, and that's where actually, I think you... I don't remember ever fighting any Cactar in any other instance in the game. But Mm-mm. they have a lot of evasion, which is annoying. So, like, I ended up switching uh, most of my characters to things that had ranged abilities that weren't, that were more accurate. So, mm-hmm. that helped. But they, like, they deal, like, chunks of 1,000 damage. And then they start to, like, Gigantamax the themes in there. And then, like, I had one of them, like, the first time they do that, it's, like, you know, a whole, like, boss in this like, scene that they make. And, the, the fucking dude would not leave Riku alone, so, like, all my healing was, like, constantly in the cycle of me, like, having to revive her, and mm-hmm. that was annoying, um, but I have to take one of them out once they become, like, a standard encounter, which I was not about, so I just started fleeing from every fight that followed, mm-hmm. um, but then you get, like, you get to the end, and you fight a giant Cactar, and then you, or, no, 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 you, you do the, the whole, uh, shooting range first, and then they make a giant Gactar that you fight as a boss. And then you bring them all back to the Cactar Nation, and then they, you know, they basically fuck up the fiends and put up a shield. Um, and, the, and the whole process, Mar- uh, Marla, uh, like, loses all her power and, like, shrivels up. Um, and so that part's fine. But after that, after the Cactar Nation is being left alone, all those fiends head back to the Albed camp, and that's where we fight, or can fight, uh, one of the... Uh, one of, like one of the end game bosses that uh, I've actually yeah yeah I have actually never finished it because it is very powerful and yeah I um 
I do at least appreciate, as like I'm thinking back on it, like I do appreciate that they kind of were more careful about where they put those kind of things. Like, you know, these very clearly not meant to be fucked with uh, bosses in places that was not going to get in the way of you doing other things. Because, like, that was one of Ten's biggest issues. Like, the, the Dark Aeons got, like, plopped into different places on the map, and it made going there either very difficult or just, like, straight up impossible. Um, mm-hmm. So I at least appreciate that, like, I can just kind of walk away from this, which I did this playthrough and have done every other time, because, and, you know, after you, after people do finish the fight, all it really is is everyone kind of, like, celebrates. And um, there is actually another scene, actually, in the Captor Nation where Benzo shows us that uh, Marla is growing back. And, you know, that's all cool. That's that's fine. That's Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, another cool note, you know, Final Fantasy, a series that loves to use... Uh, you know, different mythological beings and gods and stuff like that for characters. Agramanyu is from, I think, from Zoroastrianism, uh, which is kind of a, mm. a neat pull, uh, given that stuff. I always nerd out a little bit over, like, what characters they decide to use and from what cultures and all that. Mm. So it's a cool one to pull from. Uh, you don't see it as often as, you know, your, your Shivas and your Bahamuts and things like that. So mm. uh, I, I, I did dig that, but this is... Again, the Cactar stuff is not really, you know, it, it's a side story, but it really does feel like a side story. It almost feels, you know, maybe because I'm playing Final Fantasy XIV uh, right now, it feels like an MMO quest where they wanted to build a really big, tough enemy to fight and just kind mm-hmm. of built a story that would give you a reason to want to fight it. It's not right. saying it's a bad story, but it's not linked into the main quest mm-hmm. that you are doing. It's almost kind of built to yeah. be this could happen at any point in their journey, theoretically. So right. uh, it's, you know, it, it's over and off to the side. Um, right. And it, compared to like the other end game stuff that we're going to talk about, which all like surprisingly, like as, as I was playing and rewatching a lot of the stuff, I forgot just how kind of like intrinsic a lot of the end game stuff in this game is to like the exposition of the main plot. Not in a way that I feel like you can't understand what's going on without it, but like there's just like a lot of like really core information within all these things that are, you know, gated behind some of the toughest fights in this game. So, it, it, I mean, it is at least, there's something refreshing about this kind of being this thing that exists that you don't really have to engage with if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, speaking of things we don't have to engage with that we don't want to, over in the Calm Lands, uh, we did not do any of the PR because we are not shills. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and we did not find this man a wife because... This is not our job. This is not our... <laughs> find your own damn wife. Which is actually how that quest ends if you don't engage with it at all. Is the dude gets so depressed that you didn't do anything for him that he finally decides he's going to go off and do it for himself. Which honestly, wow. uh, that's the good ending to me, in my <laughs> opinion. So, uh, yeah. Go go get your shit done, my dude. Like, come on. Don't don't wait for the world to change. You, you go. <laughs> uh, anyways... Let's head to Bavel. Let's talk about the Via Infinito because the the freaking kindergartians have found the hardest dungeon in the game mm. because they just can't stop poking stuff in Bavel. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting way to create a final dungeon because you think about back to Final Fantasy X that had things like the Omega Ruins, which were kind of just, you know, a cave with enemies in it. And there is lore around why the Omega Ruins exist and all that, but I think Via Infinito is kind of a cool way of incorporating 
lore into mm -hmm. an endgame dungeon. And part of that is, so this is a 100-floor dungeon with big bosses every 20 floors. And one of the nice things about it is it makes it really easy for you to go and grind up certain things. So say mm -hmm. you need to catch certain enemies, you need to get certain items from defeating enemies or from stealing them, or you, you have certain oversouls that you need to, to get, this is a place where you can do that. You just go to the floor that they're on and you grind that floor. And I like that. I think that's kind of cool. It's acknowledging that, hey, this is still an aspect of this game we have for Final Fantasy X, but we're going to make it a little bit easier to get to this stuff once you're at the end game and you're at that stage where you want to start engaging with those systems. Um, the other thing is uh, these bosses and also some of the things that happen in here all kind of link into the story at large. Uh, mm -hmm. We find two Crimson Spheres here, actually, and the larger story around Via Infinito uh, is we are, we're greeted when we enter by an old dude with a rotten freaking face <laughs> yep. who uh, tells us about Trema, who locked this place and never return. The kids get out of there. They don't like this. Um, we pick up a Crimson Sphere here, um, and, and we can plunge on into the depths. Uh, and as we go further, we start to see characters we might recognize, like Master Keenock and, and Micah and Unaleska and Xeon. Those are all characters that we thought we had either defeated or had been sent or maybe went unsent. It's unclear. Um, it's kind of cool to see all these characters and the way they get repurposed for these fights. Mm -hmm. Because eventually, like, you don't actually end up fighting Keenock. You end up fighting Keenock that turns into, like, a big crab monster. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's cool that in a game that is reusing so much stuff from Final Fantasy X, they found a way to use those assets to tell a different kind of story and an mm -hmm. interesting one rather than just being like, oh, you're going to fight Unaleska again. No, right. you're, you're going to fight something a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, and they're they're hard fights too. Some of these boss mm -hmm. fights are, are pretty darn difficult from what I was seeing. Yeah, and this is actually something that I never have attempted to do because like, I think I remember when the game like initially came out and I had the guide it basically was like, hey, don't go here. This like this is not for people that are not like level ninety nine, and like fully maxed out and shit. And so like I never attempted it just because I was kind of like scared off from it. Um, mm -hmm. And so like I've always known what happens here, but I've never actually seen it through to myself. And thus, since I've never done this, I also have never actually been into the Den of Woe either. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's uh, even like I I tried to go like a few floors and I did not get to like floor twenty. And like the thing that was annoying to me when I was trying to play it now. It was not even difficulty of fights at that point. It was just like, it is like a labyrinth and it is that that's always harder for me to commit to when it is in a game with like random encounters instead of, you know, something mm -hmm. that I can see on screen. Cause then it just constantly feel like the, there's this start and stop and start and stop. And that just, mm -hmm. you know, deters me on its own. But I would like to maybe one day go back and do this. Cause I, again, it's something that I have not done in the past 19 years. This game has been out. And, like, if 10-3, God forbid, happens, I <laughs> might come back and try and, like, try and get my full 100% playthrough of this game. And this would be, you know, on that list and something that I would have to really fucking grind to get through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So I will say that while, while most of the stuff that, that pops up, you know, these characters that are popping up, 
it, it is kind of cool to see. Like, I, I think it was kind of neat seeing, you know, Leska and Zayon here. Mm. Um, and, and you kind of get this idea that maybe some of the Pyreflies have gone unsense and maybe something's going wrong here. But as you finally get to the end of Via Infinito and on the hundredth floor where you find Zayon, who is Unaleska's guardian, um, uh, he turns into Paragon, which is this big enemy. But as you start to take it out, uh, Trema shows up and does some Final Fantasy monk shit <laughs> to, to beat the crap out of him. It turns out that Trema, um, who can I think you... I believe you told me he was originally the leader of of New Yevon. Like mm-hmm. he was wanted to to lead New Yevon. Um uh and you were you're pointing yeah, <laughs> you're pointing out in the notes that, that that this is who he is. Um yeah, so Trema is New Yevon's original founder who was hoarding spheres uh, about spheres past uh and came down here a while ago. Um but, you know, we, we don't know what's up with this guy. We All we know is that Trema has come down here with a bunch of spears, not come back out. Uh, we find Trema, and he's like, look, I brought all these spears here and destroyed them because I wanted to get rid of the past of Spiro. Like, if we, we have to let go of our past because our past is bad, and um, we need to, to go on to a new path and not care about the old path. But when he destroyed them, they all turned into... Fireflies, which then mm. became all the the fiends and things that we've been seeing throughout the Via Infinito. Uh, he wanted he wanted to do this, but he died in the Via Infinito, um, so he was unable to guide New Yevon onto a new path. And so now he's like this evil, super powerful unsent that's down here, um, and and also explains kind of the faction split that has happened and why. We have a different, like, more conservative version of the faction above ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, Trema claims that Yuna has also forsaken much of her past. Kind of, you know, he's been referring to her as High Summoner Yuna and things like that. He says, show me the strength you've gained in leaving your past behind. You start a fight. And, and this dude does fight like a monk. Um, he, he is... Ooh, I, th- the person I was watching was was fighting him with what seemed like a maxed out like strong team, mm-hmm. and it still took like half an hour to yep. fight this dude. I was like, "Good lord!" Um, mm. You know, more more power to everybody who who goes out there and tackles this stuff. Um, I respect it. I have massive respect for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. It's pretty interesting. It's a it's a cool yeah. fight. It's uh, a. I I felt a certain kind of well. One thing that was interesting is that when the music, the the music of the fight is the music uh-huh. we hear just in Ravel generally, and it's always we talk about this multiple times through the ten and two seasons. Like the significance of when these games don't use a battle theme for a fight, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because like it feels like he very much embodies New Yevon and like, but also you know he talks about how like he wants to. Uh, he wanted to gu- guide New Yevon down a different path, but since he died here, and that's why there's, like, this very, like, conservative center to New Yevon. And uh, that is interesting to me because, like, I, we've talked about this before. Like, you know, the game does give you that choice between siding with the Youth League or New Yevon by who you give this, th- that sphere to. Mm-hmm. But I do ultimately feel like the game broadly ends up taking a side. Mm-hmm. And because I think even, you know, with the stuff that... Uh, you know, the militaristic side of the, the youth league that it talks about. I feel like 
broadly the story that is told in Tin 2 does vilify New Yevon more. Yeah, yeah. So I guess like that just kind of was a lot of my takeaway here and that we are, you know, the hardest dungeon in the whole game, like, the, you know, the end, the end boss is the founder of one faction versus the other. And that just felt telling to me in terms of the game, like finally like, showing his hand about how it feels about this faction war. I mean, like broadly it does, you know, still fall into like a lot of the centrism that we talked about, but I do think if forced to pick a side, Final Fantasy X has picked one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is worth pointing out that, yes, 100% completion means picking the Youth League and siding with the Youth League. And uh, even once we get to the final cutscene, there there is, like, a pretty blatant, like, hey, we're Youth League, Youth League's kind of taking the charge here. And um, I, I do kind of wish there had... This This is where kind of the exploration of what New Yevon could have been um, and, and what it could do in the world. Uh I wish it wasn't in an endgame dungeon, but mm. that is what it is, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because that's, um, like, the the feeling on a lot of stuff that we're going to talk, talk about today before we get to the actual, the actual endgame of the game. Yeah. Is that, like, a lot of really important stuff is hidden behind some of the highest level dungeons. And I think, like, mm-hmm. that, that can be a criticism, I guess, but also, like, this game has long established at this point that exploration of all of these, like, you know, the, the 100% completion is paramount to seeing everything and like understanding the Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. full extent of the story. So like it sucks in in terms of like, there's like a a huge fucking difficulty spike at the end of this game when you're trying to just like simply understand what's going on. But also like the game had set that expectation, you know, 25 hours ago. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so once, once Trema falls in battle, uh, he, he starts to fade away and says that oh Yuna, you know you've you've lost so much of your past. You clearly are stronger, and and Yuna's like no, losing my past would mean losing myself. And he's kind of like, well, where's the loss in that? You know, it, it almost I feel like it ends on a note of being like, this is why losing your past is wrong. Like this is where Trema has gone wrong. Like, you know, I mm. I, I feel like it does. On, on a base level, it's like oh well you know, maybe it is okay to let go of your past, but also, like, Trema has not let go of the past here. Trema died to keep the past down. Mm. And I think that this kind of shows what it would look like when someone who is so obsessed with their past that they will do anything, will go to any length to to bury it and keep it buried, that mm. um, they become obsessed with it, and it, it circles right back around. I think this is a good little character note for yuna to be like hey you know yuna has moved forward that doesn't mean letting like mm-hmm. completely letting go of the past because if you right. obsess over it like trauma does this is how it ends so right which is something they've been kind of like toying with with the walk of stuff as well like when they when the guy goes in there you know recklessly to try and save the mm-hmm. temple and but on, then on the other side beckham's like this is worthless to us now because we like these are false gods etc where i think everyone's just trying to kind of like reckon with what it means to like have some attachment to the past but not but recognize it no longer serves you in the same way mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. here trauma just like was so obsessed with cleansing the world of something that he lost literally lost himself in the process of doing it yeah yeah so that that's the via infinito uh a cool thing with some cool bosses and a little bit of extra lore in there uh tossed on top for extra 
just a, I, I think overall a cool way for them to tell again another side story that reuses some assets in a smart way uh and also puts together some really evil looking bosses to fight mm-hmm. <laughs> um let's head over to the den of woe now which is kind of the last uh end game thing that we have to talk about and definitely the more lore heavy almost one might say critical to the plot uh mm-hmm aspect of this game uh and and ken you left this in our notes so i i do think this is a good idea let's kind of break down the the crimson spheres because to open the den of woe we need all of the crimson spheres and as we learn over the course of the game the crimson spheres are 10 spheres that Payne herself had recorded of their squad as part of the crimson squad assignment uh she was in a squad with Barrelai and uh, Gipple and Nuge, and they were all training to be elite soldiers under Yevon, uh, as as kind of these you know super elite powerful uh, fighters under the Crimson Squad. So the first one we see, the first Crimson Sphere in order, I should say, not the first one we see in the story, because I think the first one we see in the story is the last one, isn't it? It's it's ten. Is the first yeah, one we get. I think so. Uh, and that's kind of the the weird one i would say mm. because it um we'll we'll say that one up front so that is we see ormi and logos looking around the actual den of woe and and they're saying everyone's dead but they're missing four people uh so that's kind of the the mystery they hook you in with <laughs> um mm. so crimson sphere number 1 we see uh the trio uh, Barrelai, Nuge, Gipple, and and Payne doing uh, drills in Beaconel. And Barrelai asks Gipple why an Albed person would want to join the Crimson Squad. Um, and, and to which Gipple responds, Albed want to protect Spira, same as anybody else. And uh, they start questioning a lot of stuff, warming up to each other, um, telling each other their names, getting noted. Um, and uh, they get surrounded during this this drill, and Nuge breaks formation, and Payne saves him. He's 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 kind of mad about it. He's like, "How dare you? How dare you do this?" Uh, and then Payne calls him out on on like, "Hey, you were like, you're you're basically looking for death. You know, you mm. you are being reckless." And uh, asks why Nuge, who is a Crusader legend, something we already knew up to this point that Nuge was big in the Crusaders. Uh, is is trying to die, uh, and and he's he's basically like my life is is meant to be thrown away essentially. Mm. Um, Crimson Sphere number two, Barely and Gipple are talking about Operation BN. They talk about what they want to do after Sin is defeated. A little bit more character building of these characters, and also like timeline setting of like this, there was overlap between the end of Ten and this. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. at this point, Sin is still a thing, and yeah, so like uh, Yuna's still on her. I, I want to say, like, the events of the Crimson Spheres take place around or during Operation Meehan, I think, um, are part of Operation Meehan. Uh, I think that timeline is right. Um, At least, before, like, the, the second one here is before, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, the Crimson Sphere, number three, uh, we see Master Keenock sending people into the Den of Woe. Uh, as part of a Crimson Squad assignment. And then a Crimson Sphere 4, uh, 
we see all of the we see a bunch of people in the den of woe people in hysterics covered in fireflies attacking each other cut to currents in sphere five our trio is confused. Bearly wants to leave. Nuge says they can't retreat. And then the fire fireflies possess Nuge and they all start drawing guns on each other. Um, Crimson Sphere number six. Everyone's before out we, the, Well, yeah. before we, we get to that, I do want to talk about the four and five one where everyone mm-hmm. is attacking each other. Because, like, it gets... You know, I mean, again, for, like, a PS2 game that was not really able to convey a lot of the things that I think the thing is implying, it just, it got... I was surprised at how dark it went because, like, it goes, like, full-blown, like, battle royale kind of, uh-huh. like, death match here where all these, you know, soldiers are suddenly turning on each other. And it's, you know, you can imagine in, like, a hypothetical 10-2 remake that is, you know, mm-hmm. made up in modern times. Like, you can imagine how much more intense that scene might have been. But also, you know, Final Fantasy tends to, tends to aspire for T for teens, so, like, I don't really know that it would get that much worse. But just, like... It, it, there's a lot implied within, you know, a, a game that was on a system from, like, 20 years ago that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is very dark totally compared to everything else in this game. I think, I think in general, as I've been playing a lot of Final Fantasy games recently that are T for Teen, I'm always surprised by how brutal they can be while still retaining that T for Teen rating. Because, yes, I, I, I agree, this... The, these scenes of of the Den of Woe are definitely like shocking. Uh, I was also playing fourteen earlier, and some stuff happened in that that I was like, "Oh wow, this uh, this got dark real mm-hmm. real quick." Uh, and there are a lot of other scenes and other Final Fantasies. I mean, even Final Fantasy ten, we we talked about a few scenes that are surprisingly dark and uh, stuff like home and all that, mm-hmm. which, which are like, "Oh wow." Uh, this this is bad. Kilika is another example. Mm-hmm. Like Kilika is woof, yeah. just gut punch of a section. Uh, so I'm always surprised by these games. Uh, how how do they keep that T rating? Who right. knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's because nobody canonically fucks in, in this game <laughs> except for Waka. Um, anyways, uh, number six. Crimson Sphere, they're all out of the cave and reporting back, and they tell them the team was attacking each other, felt like they were possessed themselves. They're told to return to the command center and report back, uh, and this was their first assignment as Crimson Squad members. Despite all the bad stuff that happened, um, the dudes are are super psyched or super awesome, but then the soldiers uh, start to open fire on them, and Payne's like, get out of here run um cut to crimson sphere seven where we just see pain running with her sphere still recording and she's calling out to the other three with no answer um woof things continue to go bad for our crimson Mm -hmm. squad here uh number eight the trio is at the high road and they're looking at the sunset the four of them have all regrouped found each other um Payne jokes that Nuge was uh, wasn't mad despite uh, Payne keeping him alive. Uh, they all wonder about what happened in the Den of Woe, but Nuge says uh, Maester Kenok would be upset to find out that they're still all alive. So moving as a group would probably be risky, and Nuge tells Payne to stop recording since she's no longer a recorder. Uh, number nine, uh, one for old times' sake. We see the trio. 
all kind of going their separate ways of the high road when suddenly Nuge shoots all of them. Mm. <laughs> uh, and he is covered in Pyreflies. And then we have number 10, uh, which is, we already talked about it, Ormi and Logos assessing the Den of Woe where everyone is dead, but the number is incorrect. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, I if considering how far we've played in the game already, we can pretty much already figure out what has been going on here. This is kind of just telling us what happened with these four originally. Um, I feel like we can talk more about how we felt about about all this once we get to the end of Den mm. of Woe. But uh, it was kind of cool to see these characters interacting in general because, mm -hmm. again, this is a group of three, arguably four, that we have not really seen interact much, even though mm -hmm. we've been told that they're supposed to be friends. Uh, and so then you kind of have questions about, like, well, if they're friends, why are they opposite factions and fighting with each other and yada, yada, yada? Well, here's why. Uh, and then also... I, you might have the wonder of how they rose to power when they were supposedly fugitives and all that, but then you remember, like, oh, Maester Keenog's dead, so <laughs> that, that bow tied itself right there. Mm. Um, so we've got all these put together. We can enter the Den of Woe, and Payne obviously is not really eager to do so, uh, but she says it's time to face her past. So we head inside... And it's a cave system filled with pyreflies. We're at the end. YRP, our crew, our trio gathers together. And we feel something coming. And it's the group's memories preserved and projected by fire, pyreflies. And Shuyin shows up. Um, Shuyin down here says he wanted to rest forever. But the pyreflies kept making him relive the death of Len repeatedly. He starts messing with the trio. Uh, we start to have a bunch of different stuff happen. We see the scene that was projected in the Thunder Plains. We see Shuyin slamming the keys on top of Vegnagun. <laughs> uh, Len telling him to stop them getting cornered by Bevel forces. Eventually, we start to see visions of Bevel forces with guns drawn, pointing them at people. Len's ghost appears. Shuyin saying stuff about this is our story and grabbing Yuna like Titus did at the end of 10. Uh and when everything comes to, uh, and Yuna's like, I'm not freaking Len. <laughs> um, Yuna's been pointing her guns at Riku and Pain, who still have their weapons drawn. And they're kind of in a similar situation to what Nuge, Gipple, and Verily were in originally. Um, and so we do have to fight Riku and Pain here in, in fights uh, while Yuna's ballad is playing. Um, so I hope Yuna is a good fighter. Right. <laughs> and, and not a solo white mage. Yeah. That was my first thought. It's like, I, if somebody had Yuna in the support role, say, like, hypothetically, if this were switched around and you were playing as Riku, I might have had trouble just because, mm -hmm. like, she'd been primarily my support character for so long. Granted, Alchemist has, like, enough damage and abilities that it might have been fine. But, yeah, like, imagine if Yuna had been, like, white mage, songstress, you know, nothing that was offensive and... That could have been a rough time for anyone who did that. I almost... I wonder if you can floral follow in this. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's that's one option. Yeah. That I guess you always have. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's the key strat to this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, after everybody comes to... Um, they're like, okay, well, Shuyin, you know, being all pissed off about reliving the worst day of his life over and over again for a thousand years 
it's probably gotten mixed up with all the pyreflies in here and now that's why we've got an aggressive angry spirit in here and also that's how you know we have seen through the crimson spheres this is how shu yin got out and out into spira and so here we fight three boss fights against Barilai, Gipple, and Nuge. Now, Barilai, pretty much the same fight. We've seen this one before. But Gipple and Nuge are a little bit different. Um, they kind of got their own fighting style. Um, it, it does feel kind of weird that at this point that this stuff is not in the main game because those are two pretty big characters, I would say. And having mm. fights with them in the main game somewhere would kind of be cool, even if they weren't right. full-on fights, but just kind of like, oh, you know, when you meet Gipple the first time, maybe he wants to test your metal before he sends you out into the BKL right. desert and stuff like that. That would have been neat. And, yeah. and maybe a way to put some of this stuff more on the critical path. Right. Because I feel like because I have fought Barilite, I have like a very specific image of him in my head mm -hmm. of like, how he like both as like a combatant but also like as a pseudo antagonist and again i think that starts to lean into again like the game is ultimately taking a side in its faction war regardless of what you do just because like it it always puts new yevon and the people that represent it in antagonistic roles that you actively have to engage with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and you know to to wrap this in a bow and kind of get into what my general thoughts about the den of war are um because they kind of stem off from that we, we leave, and, and Payne talks about what happens. This is why Nuge and Barilai are so fixated on Vegna Gun, because they knew Shu Yin's memories. Um, and then you know, now we, we know for sure, like, hey, this is why Nuge shot them. We, we know that the Pyreflies are now with Barilai. Uh, we've got to go solve this. I, so I like the Den of Woe, because it really does feel tied into the lore. It feels important. Mm. Uh, it feels like a reward for seeking this stuff out at the right. same time it's stuff that isn't just you know cool parts of the lore it's i think of anima from final fantasy 10 and that felt like i was kind of being rewarded for doing more in the game and seeking things out and, and venturing back to old parts that were important to me in the journey whereas this this stuff is is pretty darn important and not mm -hmm. just you know for giving us information about this trio um you know about new jimberlai and gipple but also like contextualizing pain and her importance in the story because at the end of the day you know for someone that i think initially felt like oh this is the character they inserted because they couldn't have lulu in the squad Payne ends up playing a pretty central role mm -hmm. to the events of Ten Two, and also feels weirdly conflicted because of it. Because you know she has a history with this trio, and also has a history with YRP, and ha you know at multiple times feels like torn between them and, mm -hmm. and dealing with her own past in that way. And a lot of the additional stuff in this game revolves around Payne, mm -hmm. and that feels kind of weird i don't know if i like it or not there i mean we're, yeah. we're gonna hit a lot of stuff in this game especially here at the end game where i'm like boy i kind of wish this was not missable <laughs> but uh this is definitely one of them and i think it just kind of goes back to what we we're saying even with stuff in Bavel. it's like i feel like the main plot of this game gives you just enough to like get you through it 
where I feel like it has set the expectation from the beginning that, like, exploration is rewarded in this game in a way that, you know, like, 10 had that as well, like, but I also think, like, that game had a whole lot more on the critical path, and I think that's just, like, meant to entice you to go out of your way to look for these things, because, like, it is central to a full understanding of the events and the people that in, that are involved, mm-hmm. um, because I think, like, there is a lot of, like, the, the game centralizes Yuna a lot in this mm-hmm. narrative. And I think that works just because, like, you are playing as her. And, like, that is ultimately, like, on you, the player, to decide to go out of your way to look for more reasons to keep playing, I guess. like, And I don't mean that in, like, more reasons to keep looking for things on the side. Like, I mean, more reasons to keep going on the main path as well, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. in terms of, like, motivation more so than anything because like a lot of that is you know you're you're taught from the beginning to look for these things because ultimately like you know that that completion percentage is always there like it's always something that you're having to see you know the numbers of that go up and so like i think it just kind of worked for me structurally in terms of how this game has operated from the beginning in in terms of like you know it gives you enough in terms of unit's motivation to keep moving forward but if you want like more answers as for everyone else that is around here uh you know you have to really go out of your way to, to find it and at, at the very least like it none of it feels because like, i i felt like a lot of tens extra stuff kind of felt like half-assed in terms of you know those extra dungeons to get the uh the extra aeons with the exception of yojimbo that felt fairly fleshed out where mm-hmm. the anima stuff felt you know bolted on in a way that I didn't mm-hmm. feel like did those story revelations justice. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas all the side content into feels very fleshed out and very meaningful. And, you know, I think it earns the, the structure of the game in a way that I don't know that a lot of the side stuff in 10 does. I think I, we're, we'll probably have a longer conversation at the end of this about completion percentage as a whole. Uh, and I don't want to initially like start that conversation now before we've reached the part where I think it's really worth talking about Mm. completion percentage. But I think in terms of crimson spheres, there's like a part of me that almost wishes there were markers on certain areas to say like, Hey, a crimson sphere is here. So you should go check this out because I think one of my playing this again now um, and realizing the way I played the game originally was how you know, I didn't have a guide when I first played this game. And it was when I realized that, like, I was seeing a lot of things early on that I had missed. And so I thought, like, oh, I guess I didn't get as far into ten two as I thought I did. But then we got to later parts, like the the end of Chapter 3. And I was like, no, I definitely remember this. I, like, 100% remember this section of the game. Uh, I was playing mostly the hot spots. I was playing mm-hmm. the missions because that was kind of what the game was goading me on to do. Whereas a lot of the sections that were just, it, it doesn't even tell you like you can go to, you have to go to an area and, and click on it and it'll say, Oh, there's something to do here, but it never felt like the game made that clear. And so part of me does wonder, Hey, you know, should it make that stuff clear? We can get into like Elden Ring type discussions about should you make things obvious? Is it better if everything doesn't have giant glowing exclamation points over them? At the same time, the game does use giant glowing exclamation points to point you towards the main quest progression stuff. So it feels caught somewhere between 
too like like having the information like like it's somewhere in the middle between you know a, a ubisoft style game that has everything detailed and laid out and here is where you go to do everything and here is every icon on the map everywhere all of the time uh versus an elden ring type thing where you really don't get much you, like, you at best get a few things to kind of point you in general directions but it's up to you to find a lot of things Tensu feels caught somewhere in the middle and mm. i think that's where a lot of the frustration for me comes from is i wish it would pick a lane i wish it would mm. and granted this is part of the games that i just referenced both came out after Tentu. like the even just the concepts that from soft would build on obviously kingsfield and other games like that existed beforehand and crpgs of you know before Tentu are no stranger to having off the beaten path type things you know deus ex came out i think two three years before this game did but uh tentu weirdly feels like they were starting to experiment with ideas that would become very popular but the team had not really figured out what it wanted to do with with some of those aspects and so it feels like it is half in the boat of giving the player the information they need to find things, but also tying a bunch of weird things into completion percentage, which is where I would start to get into completion percentage talk, but we'll save that. We'll save that. I promise Mm. we will get to that. I have, I have takes about completion percentage, but we will get there. Um, we got to jump down a hole first. Mm. (laughs) We got to pick a hole, any hole and leap into it. Uh, it is kind of cool that, there's there's different uh not only different holes to jump down into but also uh there are if you go into all of them i believe you get a special garment grid and that's how Mm. you get ultima yep so neat that's where ultima has been hiding all game (laughs) (laughs) is is behind another arbitrary jump in that's what i say you know when i think of ultima i think of jumping in every possible hole so Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's that makes sense um so as we're doing our rallying cry we're getting all jazzed up brother tries to rally us and is like what do we even call ourselves anymore uh and i feel like this is kind of a recognition scene where they 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 realize that they are not you know they're not the saviors of Spira. They're not the sphere hunters that they used to be either. They're not mm-hmm. a pop band or anything like that. They are just a group of pals that mm-hmm. are trying to do something right for the world here. And they're all going into this, not for money or glory or whatever, but because it's the right thing to do. And so I thought mm-hmm. that was a nice way to commend this while also, mm-hmm. you know, calling us the surging flapping mm-hmm. neighboring goal wings and the boys coming up with a special series of poses and stuff like that. <laughs> and then some little shit called Shinra tries to like hug Yuna and stuff and screw him, throw him off the side of the ship, mm. <laughs> throw him off the side of the ship before he can found Shinra. And... <laughs> oh, we're going to get there. Don't worry. Ken. No, don't we don't have to do that. No. Don't get ahead of yourself. We got, we got plenty of time to talk mm. about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's something we'll put a pin in for fucking the next episode. Oh, I mean, no, we're gonna talk about it this episode. It happens this episode. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so we we kind of do some big goodbyes, even though to get hundred percent completion, we will be returning to the ship again. A very weird thing. Uh, we we jump on down, 
and start going down this this hole and it's basically just a bunch of floating islands and there, there's some random encounters here at this point i just flipped on my bangle my charm bangle because i was not about the it again i'm at a point in the game where i could do these fights but the enemies i'm fighting are not you know they're they're not more powerful than me they just take too much investment to kill and i don't gain enough from killing them so i just move forward to the mm -hmm. next boss yeah uh and that was kind of my modus operandi for this entire section was i was over leveled for many parts of this and uh we'll, we'll talk about the difficulty of the end game stuff in a little bit but uh at this point i was well above and beyond why i needed to be but i did not want to fight these enemies that could just you know kill a character and then i have to spend forever trying to get that character mm -hmm. back up while trying to finish it and, you know i'm gonna win but it's gonna take forever or i'm just gonna escape and run away i i was getting tired of that pretty fast so mm. um again just random encounters i'm glad they're not really a thing anymore i'm glad that they're just gradually being phased out for the most mm -hmm. part uh yeah but we reach the first platform and here is shiva so this is kind of where we fight all the aeons that we have not fought yet uh and the shiva one is kind of a cool interpretation of this character uh she's fast uh much like ten uh she uses a lot of the same attacks uh her i forget i think it's heavenly dust or whatever uh the the one where she drops ice on somebody can mm -hmm. actually inflict stop for a little bit which is mm -hmm. kind of cool and mp damage yeah yeah it reflects the way that she fought in the game you know in 10 uh they find cool ways of incorporating some of those mechanics in uh and this this was not like the worst fight i think this is probably the easier of the three fights that we have down here yeah. but shiva puts up a good fight shiva yeah. shiva shows up so um let's uh <laughs> let's talk about the maga sisters which felt like i was fighting against a clock mostly <laughs> yeah it's it's an interesting thing where like the systems of tentu that were that are that are different like feel like they are starting to there's like a friction between putting a final fantasy 10 character or a set of characters that you had that fought a certain way in one game into systems of tentu like specifically the atb stuff with like weight mode which is when like mm -hmm. there's an there's an ability that is like more cinematic, I guess, in the way that it's, that it's executed, that stops all the ATB bars as they mm -hmm. use that move. And then so, like, there's constantly time where, like, you're just sitting and watching, which is, you know, runs counter to the, how you've played the game up to this point. So what I ended up doing was having Riku mix together a Chocobo wing, which would haste all my characters. And that at least, like, gave me more windows in between, like, the more cinematic attacks that the Aeons were using to actually, like, get damage in, because, like, there would be so many times where, like, I just kind of, like, had to sit and watch and not even be able to, you know, put in commands to, for, like, when, when the the attack was going to be over that got, like, very frustrating and tedious to me, because, like, I don't think anything, any one thing they, they do made the fight more, any more challenging. It was just a matter of, like, I cannot manage the team in the way that I have for the past, like, 30 hours of this game because I'm constantly being interrupted by one of these characters using an attack that stops basically the entire fight. Yeah. And, like, it's like puts the spotlight on them and is like, everybody pay attention to me, I'm doing this really cool thing, mm -hmm. and we everyone needs to stop what they're doing, and it's like, fuck. Like, it was, 
it was not hard, but it was, it was, it did feel like the systems of Tensu were running up against how these characters operated in the game prior. Yeah, it's theoretically a cool fight because you get to fight like a team of three, which we haven't really done since like what Ormi Logos LeBlanc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a cool idea, but really it ends up being a fight to drop one of the Maga sisters because once yeah. one of the Maga sisters dies, then Delta attack is completely off the table. And mm-hmm. so uh, that's like the only, I'd say, real danger that they pose. Mm-hmm. All, all the rest of their moves are just pretty bog standard moves to be honest uh and once you wipe one of them out it's fine yeah because like i did get hit by delta attack once and luckily like as they put it out like i had riku like midway through her charge for mega potion mix anyway Mm. um but like it drops everything to one hp and that is something that like because like all these characters are fairly fast as well so like if i did not have that uh that healing on the way i i could have been in trouble right right uh but once one of the sisters drops, I feels like this is a very easy fight. And mm-hmm. so I'll say look, my setup for pretty much this entire end game was pain was just on dark Knight, uh, spamming darkness for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, which is the AOE attack. And because I had one of the items that reduces MP cost to zero, for some reason it also reduces HP cost of abilities to zero. So darkness mm-hmm. was not damaging pain at all, which kind of ruled. I could just spam it all I wanted to. Uh, and then Riku was my go-to healer, Was uh, had it set up so she started as Alchemist, but for would either stay Alchemist for the fight if it was not something that I needed to do defensive setup for, but if I needed to, uh, I had it so she turned into White Mage and in the process passed through a gate that sped up White Mage cast times. Mm. So she could pretty much insta-cast, protect Shell, uh, and reflect if I needed it, and then bump back over to Alchemist and start healing again that way, uh, which I did for a lot of larger, big boss fights, uh, like the one coming up uh, that we're about to do and all that. Uh, and then Yuna was kind of the flex character, mostly did samurai stuff, but uh, would also I started using Sonstress again for some mm-hmm. of these fights, and it definitely came in handy for Magus sisters to try and uh block some attacks or buff my stats uh she was basically kind of a bard type character you know buffing the stats and and uh you know inflicting things on the enemy which i ended up really liking songstress again and was kind of like dang i should have been leveling this up more throughout the game mm-hmm. uh actually pretty useful so yeah i don't know what, what was your strategy at this point ken uh by this point i settled in on um the trainer, alchemist, berserker, kind of uh-huh. like lineup, uh, switching to white mage as I needed to to set up you know, defenses. And there was a, some point where I switched back to warrior uh, for pain just because like I wanted some of those armor breaks. And mm-hmm. um, I, it was the point where my usual plan had to kind of like was was not working out in my favor because like I would usually in most fights I would just berserk pain so she would just be like attacking. And very powerful and very fast, and but I would also just be like primarily focusing on managing Yuna and Riku then. Um, but there were a couple points, and like I even look at my notes where I say that I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna keep paying off Berserk for the rest of the game," and I I don't know what happened in like the hour or so between when I put that note down and later because I did not fucking do that, and that was you know <laughs> real real smart of me. But um, yeah, generally I stuck with those three because they were handling just about any situation that. Uh, I was running against, because like I said, I think the last episode, Trainer, 
becomes very, very versatile as you level, or at least Eunice does with the abilities that she gets, because I think everyone gets different abilities for that dress sphere. But was well, just had become very versatile because like she had elemental affinities with her attacks, was able to cure if in a, in a pinch if I needed to, and just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah, just a, a very versatile class that you really like. You know, you have to spend a lot of time investing in it, but uh yeah, was filling gaps between uh things that I used to use Pain's Warrior for that I no longer needed to. Mm-hmm. So we head into the last fight here, and it's Anima. Uh, I do want to note, by the way, that there is kind of, again, Yuna is having a lot of struggle in fighting these Aeons again. She kind of has a, a line before each fight where, you know, she expresses like, oh no, like, I'm going to have to fight another Aeon. Mm-hmm. This is obviously very personal for Yuna. I kind of wish that was explored a little bit more. I mean, it does It does feel like they touch on it at the very, very end, but... Yeah, I, mean, I do wish like we had seen just a little bit more of Yuna struggling with well, this. Well, I, I feel like I feel like we got that beat with Bahamut, and I think and as well as like the the ones that we fought in Chapter Three, like because I, I, I think here it's like we're having to kind of cap off the characters that we did not like those temp- the temples that they were in were not accessible in this game, so like that's why yeah, you get yeah. like Shiva, the Mag Sisters, and Anima here. Um, so yeah, like I I kind of feel like we had, th- that that ground had been covered, and it was just kind of like. So they kind of acknowledged that she was still struggling with, with these lines before each fight. Yeah, it's it, it does feel like these these kind of get tacked on in the end in a way that like I kind of wish there'd maybe only been one or you know did we really need to do I mean th- theoretically we did not have to do Yojimbo but uh, did did we really need to go back and do the other additional Aeons as well? well I mean um, th- think of it this way. Every every Aeon in this game is someone's favorite. That's true. That's so true. they should have to fight and suffer through fighting their favorite Aeon like the rest of us. <laughs> I mean, Yojimbo is still the best one. Like Yojimbo definitely is the best the fight, most interesting one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, like to the credit of the these three down here, they were all better than the other fights that were topside. Yeah, Veil Four was was a pushover. Like, yeah. good lord. Uh, anyways, Anima felt like just a battle of endurance to me mm. uh lost status effects which was maybe one of the trickier things and mm-hmm. that's something that feels like the game introduces late is the idea of really having to deal with status effects and and what they can do to your characters when you get inflicted with a bunch of them uh, they're very few, central to these last few fights yeah a few of these fights use different status effects to uh pretty interesting uses uh to to make battles not just about a numbers game, but like kind of having to juggle healing and status and all that in a way that felt a little bit more active. And I liked, um, but the anima fight, it's anima. We know what anima does. Uh, anima hits you with big abilities and inflicts status effects and then drops you into hell and punches you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, I felt like this was a fairly straightforward one that really the hardest part was, just keeping up with all the status effects that were getting dumped out. And that mostly meant like Riku would stay on healing while, you know, would kind of be tossing remedies at people as they needed them because I had stocked up on a ton of remedies at this point. Uh, you gotta to mix them. them. Then you just, you cure the whole party. Well, I, I mean, I'm not going to use a mix on the whole party and Riku's busy working on stuff. I didn't have alchemist slotted for, you know, that was probably like the big problem I should have had an alchemist slotted for, you know, uh, mm-hmm. That would have been forward thinking of me, but whatever. Uh, 
I got through it, and that's what matters. <laughs> uh, so all the all the the aeons are now dead, um, and Bahamut's faith reappears, and he apologizes for not being able to stop Shu Yin. Um, they wanted to try and warn somebody, but once Shu Yin appeared, all the the faith were dragged down into the darkness with him. Uh, and we can ask what what Shu Yin is, and Bahamut tells us it's it's just a shadow. It it may look like him, but the real Shu Yin is dead. You know, we know this already. If we had gone to the Den of Woe, um, and we're like, okay, we're gonna banish the shadow with the light. That's our plan. Apparently, light means love. So, <laughs> Kingdom Hearts, baby, mm, <laughs> it's, mm. it's full of love. Vagnagun um, is light, actually. Yeah, yeah, Vegnagun is full of light. Uh, we head into the Far Plain Abyss, which is the kind of grassy, flowery area where we had previously met Shu Yin and uh, where Baralai got possessed and, and yada, yada, yada. Um, a, a bunch of stuff happened down here. The last time we were here, uh, LeBlanc and her boys are waiting for us. And we ask why she's here. They're like, oh, turns out that they had a sphere where Nuge let them know where he was and said, don't follow. Um, but she's going to keep following. Mm. And th- the girls kind of tease uh, LeBlanc about this. Uh, give her a little bit of shit. Um, <laughs> and Riku says, oh, don't worry, we'll tell Nuge that you're waiting like a good girl. And LeBlanc's like, yes, and stress that part, the good girl part. <laughs> and I was like... Oh my god, this game. Mm. This game's a lot. <laughs> this Yeah. Oh boy. There there's like a part of me that wants to think that that is not I, I'm I'm of two minds about like how that relationship appears from the outside. Because mm. part of it seems like it's very um, you know, regressive in some kind of way. But then I think of, like, maybe it's actually fairly ahead of its time, actually. What if that's just, like, it's speaking to a particular kind of dynamic that these two might have and that she might be into? <laughs> Who's to say? Who's to say? Who's to say? Um, yeah, it's... I, I don't know. Final Fantasy is, like... You know, pause here on ten two. Final Fantasy as a whole is a series that will seem at at the outside as being something that is fairly you know classical rpg you know the what we think of as like almost like dragon quest and you know dragon quest is by and large a very classic rpg mm. uh outside of a few things you know in in dragon quest 11 you have uh Silvando and characters like that and obviously there's a ton of stuff with the dragon quest composer that we do not need to get into in this podcast but suffice to say uh dude suck and uh it's the there's a lot of stuff around that uh i think final fantasy also gets tagged with in times but then every once in a while final fantasy will just kind of pull something like this and you'll be like how much of this is you know is this a you know conservative like oh haha he's the domineering dude and and she wants to be the good girl and all that and they do like it implies almost at times that their relationship is 
like she's kind of constantly pining after him and chasing after him while he's busy with some with other stuff he mm. he feels distant and and all that but also like he stops by guado salon to go see her you know there's there's a statue of him in her room like she's she's definitely like leblanc is a a strong woman who who does not give no shits about other people but for for nuge she's like no make sure he knows i'm a good girl who's waiting Mm. it's like maybe there's something in that i don't know having played final fantasy 14 i can tell you that there's stuff in that game that's made me go huh huh (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if and, that's and, the localization team. I don't know if mm. that's the original text. That's the other like wrinkle and all this. But I do think you can't design this relationship and have it only show up like this in localization. So, yeah, and it's it is one of the things where like it might have read one way nineteen years ago, but now just like yeah, new world context, it maybe reads in a more positive light and more like you know, there is clear consent happening here. Mm-hmm. In the dynamic that is happening, and maybe just like as conversations around relationships that have like certain dynamics have evolved in the past almost twenty years, there's like a sort of like reclaiming of what this might have meant at a certain time that it does not read that way anymore, and now it maybe like reads as something that like I don't know that it's positive per se, but like it is something that can be spun in a positive light. I think is kind of where I'm sitting on it. Yeah, and I. I I will also say that like we're we're kind of veering into territory of camp and like mm. discussion of camp because I do think that Tensu is a game that was not as um w- you know eagerly received when it came out. I do remember there being you know and this is anecdotally for me, but I remember this being looked at as oh there are three girls mm. on the cover and they're talking about boy problems. Like, why would I want to play this RPG? I want to play the one where you kill God and things like mm. that. Uh, and I think they're, I, th- this is a campy game as well. This is a, a game that leans into camp and you start getting into questions of what is camp? How do you define it? You know, is it intended to be cheesy and and kind of tongue in cheek or is it sincere and in that sincerity is there something important to be said and yeah mm. like you, you start to get into a lot right. of different stuff that we we need to talk about a video game at some point but on the point of ten two, and and specifically leblanc and nuge i do think that there is some like genuineness to mm-hmm. to what's going on and it makes these characters feel a bit more well-rounded um, right. I, I yeah. mean, even just the fact that, like, there there are relationships in this game, like genuine relationships, mm. and not just like characters that get to know each other and all that. But the benefit of Ten Two is that these characters have known each other for a while, and their relationships mm. evolve over time. So I'm not just talking about romantic relationships, of which there are multiple in this game, but also just the idea that these characters are evolving in the way that they relate to each other, and you get to really see that work out and i i think it's cool that we get to even with these newer characters kind of keep touching back in on their their relationship status and see what what it's like and Mm -hmm. and and get to explore characters through multiple lenses and not just you know it would have been so easy for leblanc to be this comic relief character or 
just you know the the sub villain of the story before the real villains come in and yada mm. yada like it, it would have been so easy to be that instead leblanc ends up feeling like pretty well-rounded character by story's mm. end it was it was fun to see them here at the very end of the game and it felt right. earned so yeah and i think like even as we're talking about it now i think like that level of like care to not make these characters that even like at the beginning might seem like very one note and like you know really playing into like the camp of it all like that it goes so far of its way to humanize all of their parts like that kind of gives me like the more positive I, I, that makes me more inclined to lean into the positive reading of her and Nuda's relationship that it isn't like this woman just fawning for this guy that doesn't seem to give a shit about her and that it's kind of like plays into a dynamic that they are both comfortable with mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and that like Nuge does at you know various points like show genuine affection might not be the word but like a care for her regardless and like and it plays into shit like you know there was the point in chapter four where Nuj is about to talk about her and then it cuts off and you know that allows them to keep like a level of like enigma around Nuj and just like the way mm-hmm. that he relates to people but also like like more or less you know say outright that it is there and that that relationship is fulfilling to them both in some way yeah yeah I. Uh... We can also talk to LeBlanc to stock up on some potions here, but we can also head back to the airship. because Which I did not get notes on. Yeah, I got that. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, so the, I, I will say the airship stuff that you can do here is pretty, I don't know. It's, it's there. I think the most interesting stuff happens with, um, with Riku, honestly. And I'm having to actually Google some of this now because I should have taken notes on this. So, uh, most of the scenes we get back on the airship are kind of, they're there. They, they serve to like build up the characters that are on the airship a little bit more and kind of mm. give them final notes. Obviously one of them that Ken loathes is that, uh, you can talk to Shinra who's taking readings on the far plane and theorizes that he could harvest this energy in some way. It's like a massive life stream almost <laughs> that um they say probably wouldn't be able to happen in in these characters lifetimes and heck you might even need to go to another planet uh to do it and all of this is to so shinra <sighs> is also the name of the corporation from final fantasy 7 and in in interviews about ten two, the the developers kind of toyed with the idea that maybe Shinra is also the founder of Shinra. And there was, there was an interview where I I think it was Kitase laid out the kind of concept that, that, you know, maybe this could happen and then it got taken very seriously and it was later backtracked. But there is, if you play final fantasy seven remake, uh, in one of the photos of all the different members of Shinra, like the founder's photo, you can see someone who has Shinra's mask on, which to me, that reads like them just kind of doing a nod to all of that. And <sighs> feels Final Fantasy seven, Final Fantasy, the series is full of references to itself at all times. Like they're, they you is not uncommon to see things like, Oh, Hey, there's a buster sword in this game or, Oh look, you know, here's uh you know, one of the mini characters that spreads across the series like a Chocobo or a, a Moogle or something like that. Uh here's like 
when you play Final Fantasy XIV and you will see people walking around in all kinds of different outfits from different Final Fantasies and also near and stuff like that. Uh, it's not a stranger to these ideas, so I don't see this as a huge thing. I think it's just them having some fun and, I, and nodding towards it a little bit. But So, I maybe five to seven years ago, I would have maybe been like on board with like, okay, this is just like a funny nod, but this is also coming from, you know, the company that has, I would argue, maybe even, I don't know, like, I honestly feel like maybe like the 10 remaster and the stuff that we're going to talk about in the next episode is kind of the beginning of this. Is like Square has really started to dilute its own stories in ways that feel, like I, I think almost like feeling like the connectivity of the Final Fantasy series or even just like the, the expanded universe and like the idea that these games persist beyond like the end credits of one game and into something else that is larger feels like I don't know like I don't really feel like Square Enix is really doing these things without caring about like the larger ramifications of anything they actually do and more like you know these things that might seem like these funny haha moments to them do like end up getting spun into larger shit you know we are that is me talking about shit that we're going to talk about more obviously uh the next episode but like this is just it frustrates me because i don't think that square does much any of these things with any sort of like foresight as to what what they're doing why they're doing it and how the public will react to it um i i I think we're going to talk more about this next episode yeah we won't get too much into it but put a a pin in all that I will say I think there's a difference between something that they explicitly say is like here is another entry in the the universe of Final Fantasy X and like here's a toss away like we put one face in a photo that you'd have to like really pay attention to to notice and it's a nod to that one time that everybody thought and we had kind of joked about the idea that ten two and 7 might be linked like that's but I think those are two different scales of thing and I also think that's true for most things, but I also think with the game Final Fantasy VII Remake specifically, that feels more weighted, I think. Like, example is, like, isn't there, like, references in some Ubisoft games to, like, they'll put a skeleton in a hay bale or whatever? It's The joke is, like, oh, that was an assassin that, like, messed up jumping from the top of the tower. It's, like... Aha, remember Assassin's Creed? We make that game too. Like that's that's a fun little gag. Like I, I think it's on that scale of things. I I don't disagree with your general thesis. I'm just also like there are so many bigger issues we're going to get into next. Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like episode. on on a on like a scale of degrees, like this is my least problem with what Square yeah. has done in Final Fantasy X yeah. since the end of Ten Two. Yeah, this is this is whatever. They they put in a toss away thing. They had some fun with it. Uh they did not officially call it the continuation of Final Fantasy X. <laughs> um so we don't we don't need to worry about that yet. Now granted, if Shinra does show up in Final Fantasy Seven Remake Part Two, uh then you will everyone will know because Ken's screams will be heard across the world, the the world over. I will the never mob. play a Final Fantasy game again, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get this ink taken out of my arm, <laughs> cover it this with something problem. else. This is the problem with getting tattoos, Ken. I know you never know who's gonna fucking betray you ten years later. 
Start looking at that Danganronpa tattoo right there. I know. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to black out my entire arm. Just turn it turn it solid. Um, mm. Oh, incredible. It's it's actually a reference to Eco. Mm, <laughs> it's, mm, mm. it's an Eco. It's a reference to the dark void that I feel in my soul. <laughs> it's Shadow the Hedgehog. Yep. It's my shadow I, That man will never betray me, so... Maybe I should have uh, a Shadow the Hedgehog tattoo. Yeah, uh, you probably should. But <laughs> uh, the the one scene on the airship I do want to talk about that I actually had to uh, look up again real quick. And, and this is this is maybe my number one why is this behind completion uh, moment. Uh, if you have 95% completion and you go back to the airship at this point, you can go up on the top of the airship, you know, where, where everybody just kind of like hangs out while this giant plane is flying through the sky. They just like walk around on top of it. Uh, and Riku's up there and Riku tells Yuna that she feels like she's getting left behind. Uh, mm. Yuna is changing. Pain is changing. Everyone is like becoming new people as part of this journey. And Riku does not feel like she has moved at all riku feels like the same person now this is a story thread that they're really going to delve into in final fantasy 10 2 last mission mm -hmm. and so i think we'll talk more about that next episode as well but it it feels kind of weird as both a recognition that riku ended up playing kind of third fiddle to everybody mm -hmm. in the story but also has this moment where Yuna's like, I needed you through so many parts of my journey and I could not have made it without you, which is, again, she had a similar scene earlier in, in Ten Two where she says something similar, but um, it did feel like a recognition of, of their, their pairing. And then Yuna starts talking about maybe our next journey will be about you. We can go places for you. And mm -hmm. Riku's like, can I get a hunky boy this time too? And it's, <laughs> uh, it, it was very good and I liked it mm -hmm. and was frustrated that I had to watch it on YouTube because of the 95% mm -hmm. completion mark. Because right. again, as someone who likes Riku as a character a lot and has been frustrated with how little Riku has been in this game, it was like, okay, cool. They acknowledge it, but also they're acknowledging it. <laughs> right. I there don't was to do better about it. It, it, it. Part of it, that almost feels like a, a kind of thing you put in late into the process when you like, you've got this game that's mostly filled out, almost done, but then you kind of realize you look at the, you know, the third pillar of the party that you've been working with and realize that she did not get that same spotlight that everyone else did. And then, you know, I mean, and I think it it works, in and especially like after having just you know rewatched Last Mission. Like, I feel like I like that arc for her. I just wish that it was maybe more overtly talked about in a way that is not again like not gated behind completion percentage of shit. Like fucking having to go through that entire dungeon in Bavel and getting through the Den of Woe, and because like that's it, it's weird that it's tied to percentage more than it is anything specific i guess like that's that's not like a plot thread that you can follow through and you know happen upon it is something that is entirely contingent on you doing other things and maybe in a way that's kind of interesting because like you know riku through seeing all the other shit that you're doing that like really delves into pain and yuna's stories that's when she kind of you know acknowledges that but like i mean i i didn't watch the uh the conversation like was it did she make any direct references to like things that happened, like very specific things that happened that you had would have had to have cleared? Uh, not that I remember off the top. Yeah, of my it was head. more it was abstract. Like, yeah, it's mostly just like, hey, you know, Yuna 
you're you've really become a new person pain is like dealing with her past and becoming a new person but riku has kind of stayed stagnant uh mm-hmm. despite everything which i think is a story beat they handle better in last mission so right. um we'll, we'll get a little bit on that we'll, we'll we'll talk about that when we get there uh once again put a pin in it <laughs> and so um we head back on down to the far plane which apparently we can just do now you you talk to brother and he's like heck yeah i'll just take you right there and i was like cool good to know we can do that now (laughs) (laughs) and we head into a portal uh into a new area and ken let me just say straight up right off the bat don't like this uh i wish that vegna gun had been contextualized in the world of spira and uh that we didn't just kind of enter the end game portal and go to some place that really just doesn't exist anywhere else. I would have liked a little bit more context. I would have liked a little bit more feeling of place. Uh, I mean, it was the far plane like that, yeah, and but, then... but that's nothing like the far plane. We, no, don't have, sure at all. we don't, we don't have a sense of scope of the far plane. We don't have a sense of where the far plane really is outside of like, there's a portal to it in Guado Salam. And that's about it. And it's also like through, like you go, they go through the whole of, where the faith were yeah it's so so it's like kind of the core of the planet i guess like yeah. again we don't really have a sense of what the far plane is like physically cor- corporeally and so granted that's something that we'll get to talk to a little bit in <laughs> next episode mm-hmm. but uh i i kind of wish so one of the things that that really hit me about the Final Fantasy X endgame was that when you're fighting Sin, like, yes, you go inside Sin and you fight inside of Sin, and that's all kind of, like, you know, you know, expanding, contracting, weird space stuff inside Sin. But not only does that make sense for a being that is made of fireflies and the Faith and all that, but also Sin is basically, like, next to Bavel from what I remember of 10. Like you have a sense of where sin is when you fight sin. Uh, and you have a sense of scale for sin. Whereas Vegnagun, we, we maybe get a sense of scale in terms of relative size to the characters here, but otherwise you're just kind of in this void. And I, I, I wish that there had been more of a sense of like Vegnagun as a threat because we see Vegnagun in the world once and then the rest of the time he's in the far plane and it just kind of exists outside of time and space in his own way so that that's my that's my gripe I would have liked to have mm. fought like like what if he emerged in the ocean outside of Besaid and so then like okay you've got an imminent imposing threat and he's not just in this void over here but you can still kind of have this separate area that's cordoned off for him I don't know, but uh, we move on. <laughs> I, don't, um, I mean, well, I, I feel like him being in the far plane specifically is significant for for Shuyan, I guess, but for reasons that we will, yeah, that we will get to yeah. shortly. Because, like, I think like there are things that happen here that cannot happen elsewhere. Yeah, they they need to happen in the far plane. So I get that. It's just. I don't know. I'm I'm mad that we never saw Vegna Gun like attack something. You know. Well, I mean, he's designed to run away. Yeah, yeah, but I I don't know. He he's just kind of felt like a threat that has not existed up to this point. He's just run away the whole time, and and the one time he really exists as an actual threat, as an actual weapon, is when we're fighting him. So that mm-hmm. 
we we get to see sin's power multiple times in 10 and really like understand what what a threat sin is but we don't really get a sense of like vegna gun as a threat well i think to some extent like vegna gun is supposed to be this more like the threat of vegna gun is more of the the threat than the actual thing is because like you know it's supposed to be symbolic of like a an ongoing thing that like spira is more or less kind of drudging up with its faction war of like it's it's symbolic some yeah symbolic in that way and i think like yes like you know the 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 machina is a threat to spirit like as the thing that could destroy it but also like it is symbolic of them falling into the same cycles and fights that they have been in and ultimately destroying the new chance that they have so it's like i i i think i prefer vagnagon as an existential thing rather than having to be this thing that everyone has to see like you know drawn out in front of them and be like oh shit if we don't get our shit together now that thing's gonna fire upon us where that's just more something that, like, you know, the the player and, like, the characters that surround you and I have to deal with as sort of them all having to confront their own personal shit and then kind of, like, take what they have learned throughout this whole process back into the world as its leaders and deal with, you know, the things that we're going to get to later in terms of them trying to take the lessons they have learned and spread them across Spira instead of falling back into the same shit again, as Shudian has said multiple times that we are going to keep doing. Because... You know, spirit is on a cycle that it just keeps repeating. I just wanted to see Vegnagun raids the city, man. Just wanted to see it once. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we we do some puzzles here that I'm extremely good at. I, mm-hmm. I must remind yep, everyone, pro gamer stress. I'm really good at these. Uh, super good, especially dodging the electricity. Uh, mm-hmm. And everyone should know this about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, never once has this man walked through an electric <laughs> fence and. And then proceeded to get up and walk immediately back mm. into said mm. electric fence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's the first one's fine where we just kind of have to get different notes and then play them in the right sequence. I thought that was kind of neat and builds into, you know, the idea of, oh, you know, music's been important in this entry and vegna guns controlled by a piano i guess and like a giant pipe organ pretty much Mm -hmm. and uh so music is kind of the theme of this quote-unquote dungeon this last dungeon uh (laughs) you had omega weapon show up as one of your random encounters yep (laughs) like what the fuck charm bangle baby (laughs) on Mm. the whole time (laughs) i'm not playing with that (laughs) Yeah, when when the random encounters are harder than the bosses you're fighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my mm. god, uh, <laughs> that's just so messed up. You're like trying to solve these puzzles, and then Omega Weapons like, "Hey, what's up? Bet you missed me. <laughs> I've been down here. Um, you sent so, me to hell, and then you came here. Mm-hmm. You, look, you, you came here. You sent me here, and then you followed me down here. You're reaping what you have sowed." <laughs> so. Um, we, we play the full song and we get into the, the, the center area and, uh, we find Gipple and Nuge, uh, or Gipple's down here injured. Um, LeBlanc shows up and, uh, is like, oh, can you, can you take care of Gipple? We have this whole thing again with her being like, I thought you were going to wait. And then, okay, tell Nuge that I'm down here. (laughs) Make sure you tell him about me. Like, 
reiterating that joke again. Uh, really, this kind of gives us a a place to stop off, and and this mm. is going to kind of be our final respite area as we go through this next part. Uh, but also, we get the pain sphere, uh, and and Gipple hands it to her. It's from two years ago. She says she'll watch it later, but Yuna insists, like, hey, watch it now. We don't want you fighting and being distracted by what might be on it. And we we turn the sphere on, and it's the 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 Crimson Squad all on the ship talking about their futures. Uh it kind of looks like the ship between Besaid and Kilika a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Probably multiple fairies in this world, so I won't assume, but it, it reminded me a lot of that section mm-hmm. of ten. And uh they're all kind of talking about um, what kind of roles they would fill on a ship and, you know, what their futures would look like in it. And they agree that Nuge should be the captain and uh, they all kind of joke and, and laugh and stuff. It's, it's a really nice scene Mm. and it both establishes a point that they're going to just really hammer home in the ending. (laughs) And also uh, I, I did think it was, interesting to have pain kind of be like i wonder what happened to the me that was in that sphere and that was honestly a pretty powerful moment for me because i think that's a pretty universal emotion of looking back on an old recording or an old photo of yourself and being like i wonder what happened to that person because i'm not that person Mm -hmm. anymore i'm a different person now and it feels like it recognizes that pain has grown a lot Mm -hmm. and changed a lot and obviously you know things have happened to her but also she has become a different person on Mm -hmm. her own as well and i feel like that's something that we're going to again circle back around to in last mission and and again last mission i think does this super well i'm really looking forward to talking about it but um it's it's an interesting little note to leave the crimson squad on heading into the finale uh, Mm -hmm. and also for pain it feels like a both a wrap up for pain and also kind of the team being like, Oh, you know, players might not have done the den of woe at this mm. point. So let's like really make sure that they get that these four were all hanging out and had kind of goals mm-hmm. and stuff, but are now very different people. Like right. that they yeah. were at one point aspiring to do things together and mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. been broken up by circumstance. Yeah. And yeah. bullets. Yeah, and by shooting each other, <laughs> the classic breakup. Uh, and then we get to the worst puzzle in the game. Mm-hmm. I know I might have said it about other things, but this is the worst one. This mm-hmm. one sucks. It's mm-hmm. bad. Yep. It's, it's terrible. It's mm-hmm. You have to remember the song that we've been using, that we have to remember the notes for, but then also go and find and, and step on different platforms using platforms that go up and down very arbitrarily uh like you mm-hmm. can ride a platform up to another platform but you can't ride that one down without stepping on another platform first and if you step on a platform you've like added it to your sequence and so the goal is to get to the end of this area which requires moving on the platforms and then step on it and have the right sequence and that will open the gate and if you do it wrong there will be a boss fight and it's the worst and um yeah i used a guide for this it sucked i hated it even using a guide i messed it up a couple times because it's so bizarre to figure out and Mm -hmm. and just route out and it's it's bad it's just bad so especially like a weird like shitty note to put like 
just before the final boss. Yeah. Like, or sequence of final bosses. Like, I don't know. I like just anyone on the dev team said something. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, are we sure this is what we want to do? We got nothing what else. Just, what if we just move this big platform at the end to the very bottom where the player could simply step on it? Yeah. 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 What if we just didn't have this part here? Uh, anyways, this is our point of no return, quote unquote. Uh, <laughs> we will be able to... <laughs> come back to the safe sphere a few times <laughs> to checkpoint a uh, thing that Ken did not know and was furious. Have I doing not it. known for 19 years? And it's also like, I. Mm. anyway, you went through a whole journey watching me do that. It was, it was frankly amazing. Uh, I wish we had recorded it in real time because the Ken was just, Oh, is, it was perfect. It was chef's mm. kiss. It was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> We head in through the gate of the worst puzzle in the world, and uh, Vegnagun is is up to stuff. We can see Shuyin just slamming the keys up top, uh, charging that thing up, and we see Nuge hanging out. Nuge is like, I got a plan. We're going to have to fight through Barrel Eye. We're going to shoot Barrel Eye. And I'm like, Nuge, <laughs> stop shooting people. It's <laughs> not the solution to everything. Um and the whole idea is that if we injure Barrel Eye and make him unable to keep hitting the piano keys, I guess, Shuyin will look for a suitable body to do the same in and will come for Nuge. And then Nuge has like rigged himself with explosives, I guess. And it, the idea is that he's going to take Shuyin out with him. Uh, and he's, again, Nuge just has a death wish just wants to die and wants to sacrifice himself for the greater good. But Yuna's like, no, I don't like this. This is bad. Uh, I am sick of everyone dying and not getting to experience mm. the, the benefits of winning. You know, if I want to, if I'm going to win, if we're going to save the world here, I want everyone alive to bask in it, to share in the victory. And, this is where the voices of several different characters start to just kind of echo in Yuna's mind, I guess, as as we do this whole section. I mean, we are in the far plane, so that's part of it. But we hear Braska, Jekt, Orin, and the Faith of Bahamut all speaking to us throughout this section. Um, and we we then decide to, like, I don't know, fight with the power of love and um, Ken, you transcribe this whole speech. I'm trying to remember what comes after this and you just have the whole speech transcribed. I, I, I expected us to read it, but you summed it up, so it's fine. Well, I mean, I'm, this is like 14 paragraphs. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Um, Crucially, it, listener. Well, this is three paragraphs. It's not three paragraphs. I'm looking at it listener. now. There's there's multiple paragraph breaks. One, anyway, two, <laughs> three, <laughs> four. So you're already wrong. Oh, okay, here. fine. Four. That's still like fucking less than half of what you just said. Mm-hmm. I look at all these paragraph breaks. Um, this anyways. isn't transcription. This is my thoughts. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh. We we can if you would like we can we can pause and talk about this speech because I do think it's worth talking about that this is this kind of feels like the culmination of 
both the fallout of Final Fantasy X and also what Yuna has been building up to in terms of the Tidus storyline, which is mm. at this point, like Yuna is kind of trying to make her peace with the idea that we might not be able to get Tidus back mm-hmm. and there might not be that. That's not how the story is going to end. But one of the other main takeaways from Tidus being gone is that that was an effect of winning in Final Fantasy mm-hmm. 10. That was how right. they won. And she resolves that, okay, I'm not going to be able to get him back, but I don't want to win again and win that way. Like right. we had to, we had to get rid of the Aeons. We had to get rid of Orin. We had to get rid of Tidus. That was the only way to save mm-hmm. Spiro. We didn't have a choice, but we have a choice now. And if I have a choice, I'm right. not going to choose the thing that gets rid of people, you know, right. we, we can always fight for a better reason. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I like it a lot. It's a good yeah. half off to her story. Yeah. And it, I mean, it just feels like, like I said, back in you know, the last episode of the 10th season, it was like, it felt like even though we won, we were still very, like we were ending the cycle, but we were still beholden to it. And I feel like mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. ultimately like what Yuna's entire like spiel in this game is, is like trying to like, reclaim like some bit of like herself and like the things that were taken from her in the process of winning because like to her that doesn't feel like a victory it feels like a concession was made but it was a different concession than what she thought she was going to have to make initially and that's Mm -hmm. just as bad if not worse to her because it's not something that she is losing of her own volition like giving herself up is she's having to watch somebody else sacrifice for her and that does not feel good for her and that is you know like a, a a win that requires the loss of something isn't a win to her anymore, and mm-hmm. I think like you know, new just giving in to some sort of like the like there's a defeatist kind of like apathy to what he because he like views this thing as inevitable, and mm-hmm. that is just something that she just like doesn't really have a tolerance for anymore. Like if there is another way, she wants to find it, and yeah. that is worth fighting for for her. That's that's the mindset that led so many summoners to die mm-hmm. before her. And it's the mindset that you actively buck when you fight Unalesca. So right. channeling the spirit of Orin here, mm-hmm. you know, choose, you know, fight or, or, or die. And uh Yuna's gonna fight and make sure no one dies in the process. Uh and then Yuna you know, Nuj is like, Okay, if you're so smart, what's your plan? And Yuna, being the brain genius that she is <laughs> Is like, hey, this is a Machina, right? And Riku's like, yeah. And and Yuna's like, well, you can break Machina, right? And Riku's like, oh, of course. And everyone's like, oh yeah, we didn't think of that, huh? And I was, I'm sitting here like, really? We we didn't think about that. We did not. Oh, we could just turn Vegnagun off. I mean, like, yes, that's more difficult, but you could just find the off switch <laughs> if there exists one. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I think they. I mean, they recognize that, like, I guess this comes into, like, the the fatalism stuff again. Like, they, they view Fetnagun as this insurmountable thing. Yes. And so, yeah. like, there just kind of has to be, like, a rallying cry. Like, consider this indestructible thing might actually be destructible. Be destructible. Yeah. So. Well, so this is, this is why I was emphasizing earlier that it's important you know how powerful Sin is. Because it's kind of the reason why a lot of people are afraid to fight Sin. Because... Operation BN shows you that even if you have this organized mm-hmm. army and everyone trying their best, 
Sin is still going to just wipe it all out. It shows you why the summoners are constantly turned to and kind of answers the questions that Titus has had about like, why don't we just try to stab Sin? Mm. <laughs> like, um, and it, it then makes that feeling of, oh no, we're, we're going to stab Sin. We're going to go inside Sin and stab it and it'll, it'll be fine. Uh, like it makes that feel more impactful because you're doing something that everyone thought impossible and has been proven to be extremely difficult. Whereas with Vegnagun, I don't feel like we've had that same danger established. I feel like we don't have that same mm. level of, of threat established where it's like, Oh, now we're going to fight Vegnagun, but how it's, it's whereas like, I, I kind of went into this being like, yeah, we're going to fight Vegnagun. Like we kind of already killed sin. I, you know, <laughs> Vegnagun is not nearly as scary as sin is. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> so this is, this is one of Eric's hot takes of the episodes that Vegna gun is not very threatening or imposing in any way. <laughs> um, so we, we decide we're going to beat up the machine and Gibble and the Le- LeBlanc crew show up. Uh, everyone's together again. We're all going to work together. The, the machine starts to spring into counteraction and the platforms start moving around. Uh, and so we have to kind of take it on piece by piece you know, and we, we kind of help out with different parts. So we take on the tail first as LeBlanc's group heads for the legs and Nuge and uh, Gipple head for the torso. And everyone kind of says like, you know, good luck, don't die <laughs> to each other. <laughs> um, let's start, so we, let's start with the segments of Vegna Gun. Uh, the, the tail is our first part and the tail boy the tail starts off strong uh Mm. the tail has a a few attacks that were definitely imposing that were definitely scary Mm. i felt again like it was it was all about just kind of setting the tone and there's even so throughout all of the fights that we have here the the ethereal voices are going to speak to us inject will say if you can't beat the tail forget about the rest It, it feels like this is the the tone setting this is the almost gatekeeper of the final encounter like mm-hmm. if you can't beat the tail you probably need to go grind and and level up and come back so uh it's it felt like just a numbers game largely it's you know big damage you know make sure you can heal and defensive spell through mm-hmm. it but it is a straightforward fight there's right. not a lot happening here yeah uh, it, it, the numbers are higher than they've been but uh-huh. In terms of like actual mechanics of what's going on, it's the least elaborate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Not much to say about it. Tail, tail's a tail. You know, it just wags around and hits you with stuff. And um, fires very precise beams that do a lot of damage to one person at a time. Yeah, yeah. Surprising amount of damage, but that's what we have healers for. Uh, we we take out the tail and we see LeBlanc's crew is having some trouble with the leg. Uh army and logos are kind of getting wanting to get out of there but leblanc threatens them with a foot of her own (laughs) (laughs) uh the goal wings swing in uh leblanc takes off to go assist nuge while we take on the leg and the leg honestly probably my favorite section i think it was the Mm. most interesting one uh it has kind of different nodes above the limb that we're attacking that signify different uh, affinities so you think back to things like Seymour and and stuff like that in Final Fantasy X it felt reminiscent of that in a cool mm. way um, and 
they they cast different magics and deal with different things so rather than elemental affinities you kind of have physical attack recovery magic and then just magic magic mm-hmm. um this one i mostly took care of by just casting reflect on my party mm-hmm. which yep. bounced back a lot of the spells that were a problem and right. uh obviously did damage to the leg itself and i just tried to heal through it and blitz it down it seemed like you had some trouble with this one ken well the main reason being i was a fucking idiot and berserk pain at the beginning because she <laughs> you know she's i wanted to do more damage and be faster and but not taking into account that if something happened to you and riku the only character i had on the field could not do anything except mm-hmm. hit mm-hmm. hit real hard and this was like i think i talked about it last episode like i had gotten to the point where i was using howl to double mm-hmm. pain's mm-hmm. hp so she was, like, always somebody I could rely on for any of these, like, really powerful team-sweeping attacks. Like, she would still be up and about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, again, I did not think ahead that if something happened to, you know, Riku, I would not have a character that I could actually control if she preserved. So mm-hmm. that sucked, and ended up I actually <laughs> lost this fight. And because I did not know that you could apparently go back to the safe sphere between each fucking phase of Vectagun for, or for, like, half of them. Um... I had to go rewatch that entire cutscene again and then fight the tail again. And <laughs> so that was cool. That was fun. But then I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm just not going to berserk pain for the rest of the game. Maybe I'm mm-hmm. not going to like, mm-hmm. like, I'm okay. Like I put all this, uh, this setup here to keep this character on the field, even during like, you know, some of like the really powerful attacks. Maybe I should, you know, make sure that she can do something if she happens to still be alive while the other two are down. So once I got back, uh, I did end up doing what you did too. Like I, I reflected with Rico as a white mage, and then I switched Yuna from trainer to Gunner because Gunner has like one of its higher level attacks is scatter shot and scatter burst, which shoots all of the enemies mm-hmm. on the field. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the nodes, basically, yeah, yeah, and the nodes are out of reach for anything that's like a melee attacker. So like, it was good to have Yuna on Gunner, Rico on Alchemist, who could all hit the nodes as well. But although all you really have to do is beat the actual leg itself. But at the very least, I could, I could do damage that would shut them down briefly. Um, mm-hmm. So time. Yeah. yeah. So once I did that and you know, had that set up, uh, I was pretty solid between reflecting all their magic and having Yuna do damage to all, all the targets and pain, not berserked, just like constantly attacking the leg. I w- that, it came fairly easy to me after, after that. So, yeah. Uh... I will also say this was the point maybe here or in the next one where I was starting to get a little annoyed with the voices speaking to you because I would be busy fighting and they'd just be yelling like tips at me like, look out for the nodes. They're using different attacks and stuff like that. And I'd be like, I get it. This is like the third time you've said this. I get it. I've comprehended the knowledge. Let me fight this battle in peace. So I think I think those are like procced by you doing things that are not effective to... Oh them and so when you reflect and then like when their spells reflect back onto them and then don't do damage because a lot of the, the spells that you reflect on like you know through using reflect on your party while the nodes are using abilities they don't actually do damage they just like block their guard so like it's not right you know it's a net zero change but like you're ultimately putting on you know you're using an ability in a roundabout way that is not effective that's would proc those voice lines yeah, that was probably why it happened. Because, like, it was having the effect I wanted, which was I wasn't taking damage right. from the magic. 
and it was not having a negative effect on the fight at all for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the game was like, oh, wait a minute, you hit this thing with something that's not effective, better remind the player about how this fight works. Right. And I'd heard that one tip like 12,000 times is the worst. <laughs> so uh, we, we beat up the leg and uh, we head up towards the torso where things are getting a little rowdy and we come across logos and Ormi who are having trouble uh but they want us to go help leblanc and kipple and nuge are up there they're having trouble everybody is just struggling against vegnagun and finally you know it falls to yrp to do the real damage to finish them off uh so here comes vegnagun's torso plus arms uh this i was trying to remember what fight this reminded me of i think it was like Braska's final aeon kind of uh, where you had like, one center thing that you have to take mm-hmm. out, but two kind of side things that you're also dealing with. Um, again, Darkness just did wonders in this fight yeah. for, for taking out the arms while also doing damage to the core, because the whole idea is that the core will proc counterattacks uh, at certain points. So if you just keep blasting with Darkness, mm-hmm. you just get through this. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, Darkness is the goodness in this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Same I had, um, ability. that was the, I mean, to your point about the voice lines earlier, like, that was the funny thing, because, like, they were like, forget about the arms, they're just a distraction, go over the torso, and then, so, like, I was like, okay, cool, and so, like, I sent Yuna's dog after it, and then, as soon as that happened, you know, one of the arms comes with a counterattack, and so, like, it's not even set to ATB bars or anything, it's, like, a matter of, like, you attack that thing once, you get hit with a counterattack, so that's best to start attacking the arms, and so, you know, don't listen to your elders, kids. Uh-huh. Don't listen to them. They're dead for a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't figure out combat and they lost. Um, so we we beat up the, the torso and Vegnagun is is fallen down. Uh, and Enrique is like, oh, yeah, we're finished. And Verilai's like, yes, you are finished. <laughs> and uh, Shu Yin shows up and he's like, all of Spira is finished. And, and Vegnagun starts charging up and it's got a giant cannon that's mm-hmm. aimed at spira uh so interestingly enough if you don't end this fight fast enough or if you don't do anything you can get the bad ending here mm-hmm. uh which i don't know why you do that but that exists i think that's kind of fun that you mm-hmm. know fitting with the the structure of this game uh but honestly this was another one where i felt like i was just kind of blasting and blitzing down this enemy as fast as i could um using kind of my my go-to stuff uh i do kind of wish i had messed around with the special dress spheres at this point uh Mm. but i was also using sphere grids that had so many nodes on them that it would have taken me a while to get that set up and this fight is on a timer so Mm. uh i was just kind of like you know what whatever we're just gonna we're just gonna beat it down we're just gonna Mm. fight it out uh, did you have any sort of different experience with this? No, I mean, it is similar to the torso fight, just because, like, the tusks are what kind of, you know, they're they're the additional target, but they also, when they are on the board, they are, you know, capable of doing a lot of different abilities. And mm-hmm. um, so it's just a matter of, like, making sure that you take them out first, although they are a lot quicker to heal than the arms were. Yeah, there's also, this is one of the points where, like, he's got, like, you know, a, almost... Very close to, like, party-wiping ability, but I had, like mm-hmm. I said earlier, like, I'd use Howl with Pain uh, to, like, double her HP 
And I also put some equipment on her as well. So I guess she was well at 9,999 by the time that she used that. Mm. So I was never in danger, but it was just a matter of like being sure that I could uh, outlive any of those. But um, I ended up by the end, because like, I was just like switching around dress figures throughout, uh, like switching you between like Gunner and Trainer, which for some reason I put on like the opposite ends of the dress figure that she, or the garment grid she was on. So like I just kind of ended up switching to four follow because it was there for me to do and mm-hmm. that was because I, I, at that point like it had become like such a war of attrition at that point that i was like uh, maybe i'll try and speed things up so i don't you know end up getting fear of vaporized and yeah it was you know the, the just me kind of not like going in there with like a grand plan of like okay i'm gonna go use one of the special dressers to get out of this quick but it was just like realizing that that was kind of there and in front of me and something i could try and that mm-hmm. sped things up yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, mm, uh, uh, mm, well, I'll think about talking about that in a second. We'll, we'll get to the next fight first. Um, so we, we beat up Vegnagun. We have now properly beaten up Vegnagun and destroyed all of it. Uh, and now Shu Yin stands before us through Verily. And Yuna adorns the songstress dress sphere, trying to get Shu Yin to perceive her as Len. And you know, he's he's walking towards us. He's all like, oh, Len, you're here. And Yuna kind of starts to try and deceive him a little bit, being mm-hmm. like, I love you. I'm grateful that you stayed with me until the end. Uh, and, and he's like, oh, I couldn't save you. It doesn't matter. Don't go grieving alone. Rest, please. And then uh, Shuyin finally detaches himself from Verily and kind of stands alone. So I get, this is what we're talking about. Kind of need the far plane for this stuff because uh, this would not really be super possible in Spira proper, but is sort of a far plane thing you could pull. Um, and he's like, "Oh, we can fade together." And then as he gets closer, he starts to realize it's actually Yuna that he's he's not seeing Len, and he's like, "No, you're not Len, nah," and enters the stance mm. the Tetis stance uh and so this is the actual final boss fight of final fantasy 10 2 is basically against Tetis mm. <laughs> with all of his overdrive attacks uh and boy he he does damage he mm. he he deals it out a lot a lot of it uh yep. and this that's was this was a dangerous fight for me where i almost lost a few times and really have to hand it to the songstress dress sphere and mm. stat boost for like getting me through it yeah i um the, the thing that like it caught me off guard because i'd kind of forgotten that like if a lot of the overdrives he uses are like party-wide and those are kind of manageable but like when he really hones in on somebody he can just yeah knock yeah. anyone out like very mm-hmm. quickly and um that that was when because like i think like the first move he did like he took out yuna for me like immediately and that one was like, oh, oh, shit, okay, I need to, like, be putting some, like, defensive spells up and uh, trying to, like, manage that. Because, like, once I got, like, I, I switched you to, or, excuse me, Riku to White Mage and put up, like, you know, Protect. And I actually don't think I did anything else because most of his attacks are physical. Um, so, by then, you know, I was able to outlive a lot of those overdrives. But, um, yeah, like, he he's not super intimidating when he's trying to attack the whole party, but, like, if he hones in on somebody... And just like starts like really to focus damage them, mm-hmm. he can really overwhelm me very fast. Yeah, yeah. It was. I don't think it's my favorite of these final boss fights. I do think the Vegna gun leg fight was probably my favorite one. But mm-hmm. 
uh, it was a better way. I was glad they ended it with this versus ending it with the other Vegna gun fight because I mm-hmm. thought that one was pretty underwhelming. Mm-hmm. And and this one, I, honestly, most of Vegna gun felt underwhelming outside of the leg section, whereas at least Shuyin felt like both thematically and as mm-hmm. a fight, like a good enough ending. It was not. There's no Braska's final Aeon. It was like I think Final Fantasy X still like holds the trophy for just an incredible final boss mm. gauntlet, but uh this this was kind of neat. And having having it be Tidus's moves and obviously mm-hmm. once again, you know, seeing all of them used against you and all that, there there was that cool part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it again, like it's it's something that the game never outward only well, it kinda did with the make and stuff, but like it doesn't really like take a lot of time to really point out what Shuyin actually is in terms of like his relationship to Tidus, because like yeah, I mean, again, like, it's, a lot of it's implied and a lot of it's kind of left unsaid. And I think that, you know, to its credit, is interesting um, that, you know, he he fights the exact same way. He sounds exactly the same. He looks exactly the same. Like, this is a version of, you know, it's, like, it's almost like a worst-case scenario of, like, what you're trying to find at the end of this game. Like, you're trying to find Titus, but, like, now you found, like, this ghost of him, this, this shadow, as Bahamut called it. And mm-hmm. you're, you're having to look at, like, just this person that has... You, I mean, honest, honestly, if we want to get fucking big brain about it, like, even Yuna has to, like, reckon with, like, this is what I might be if I don't let go of the love that I have lost. Yes. And, yeah. you know, what she could have, like, hypothetically, like, if, she, if her spirit persisted in the same way, could lead to, like, you know, this huge fucking travesty. And, yeah, it's just, it works on, like, a lot of fronts. I think, like, you, you know, a lot of time is spent talking about how much he looks like Titus, but, like, Thematically, he, he looks a lot like Yuna, and that is interesting, mm-hmm. especially going into the ending of this, endings plural of this game. <laughs> um, yeah, so we finally take him down, and Yuna tries to, like, comfort him, and, and uh, he's, he's like, you don't understand me, very Titus-like. Um, and uh, Len's spirit appears uh, out of our dress sphere, and he, you know, he gets mad and tries to strike out, but uh, Len kind of comforts him, and the thousand words starts playing the piano reprise. Oh my god, I just got very, choked up thinking good. about it. It's very good. <laughs> it, like, real talk, mm. the music in this game, underrated in, mm. in the whole of Final Fantasy. It's, this, this was a very good time to piano reprise this song. And, uh... They, you know, they're both kind of like, look, it's been a thousand years. It's been forever. Like, we we do get this moment, but we need to end this. Like, we've, that was all a thousand years ago. Let's go home. Um, let's, you know, finally rest. Um, yeah. And they just kind of hold each other and drift off together. It's very sweet. It's a very she, sweet she says that She says that she has a new song for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um... It's a very sweet way. And also Len like turns back to Yuna and thanks her, which mm-hmm. I think has a little bit more impact if you've had all the scenes of Yuna. Well, I mean, those are all in the main story, I think. All the Len stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. outside of the the Macon the Macon stuff, but mm-hmm. I, I do think it was impactful to have Len like ha- have an acknowledgement that like Len was part of the journey as mm-hmm. well through the dress sphere and all right. that so that was that and was nice i also like that she had to come through to get through to shuyin because they're like you like you said earlier like you is trying to deceive him and i think 
it was interesting to me that, like, Yuna is a person that, like, thinks that she has to take everything on herself, and that is, like, a pressure that she feels. And I think it was just kind of good for everyone involved for it to, for the game to kind of acknowledge, like, it wasn't mm-hmm. her place to say those words to him in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, like, I just, I, I like that kind of acknowledgement that Yuna cannot save everybody. It's not a responsibility, and it's also not her place in some cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, it was really a nice moment to cap that off and, and everybody kind of regroups and gets back together and gets ready to leave the far plane. And we have a moment where we can press X. So before we talk about the end or like the scene that we got, I have to ask, did you go and watch the, uh, like, I think it's called like the sad ending, the bad ending or whatever with an S at the beginning. S A D. Are you talking about the one, are you talking about the one that you get if you don't do any of this? Yeah. Like if, well, no. Okay. So, there are two ways that this scene here in the far plane can go. The one that we saw, which we will get to, but there's also one that happens if you didn't get a certain level completion percentage and also did not press X when you were down here the first time, and I got the whistle. Oh, I, I don't think I, I've, I don't think I found that one. Yeah. So this is, and this is the one that I think I got the first time I played through because like I, I, I think it was both a completion percentage thing, but also like I didn't know to press X the first time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you press X here. And the teeth of spirit like kind of comes up behind you and holds her the way that he did, you know, at the end of ten, and she kind of like says like, "Oh, it's you. You've been with me this whole time, but I'm not afraid to move forward anymore. I love you." And then he just disappears. And I think we'll talk about the actual ending. I think like that ending also works pretty well for this this game. I think it's I think it's fine. I think yeah. it gets there. Because I think that it's like what do you favorite ending of the two of like fourteen I guess honestly but yeah yeah because like I think there's just something to be because like I think you can take multiple things from this game and still feel complete I guess because like I think if you leave it on that note that's when Yuna kind of has to you know do everything that she was talking about in this last chapter and where she's like okay I'm going to have to consider that the future that I thought I was you know fighting towards here isn't possible. And I'm going to have to keep on living with the knowledge mm-hmm. that I did all that I could and that this person is still with me, even if he's not literally with me. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's good. And, like, you know, the, the person that likes tragedy likes that ending a lot as, like, a kind of, like, in a vacuum, I guess. But I think, ultimately, I do prefer the, the good ending that we will talk about now, because now we can talk about what so- we actually saw. Yeah, let, let's stratify this out a little bit. There's kind of a lot of different endings if you look at that, because there's that ending. There's, I, I think you can also just if you whistle here and you tell the faith, like, no, I don't want to see him, because what you have, when you whistle, Bahamut's faith shows up, and uh, asks if we want to see him again, and they basically imply that with them kind of roused from their slumber by Vegnagun. They are back and they aren't against the idea of bringing him, you know, quote unquote mm. back. Um, I, you know, I guess if you're already awake, you know, what's, what's a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we can say yes, or we can say it's better this way. And so I think the other one just kind of ends like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm moving on I'm moving forward, mm. whatever. Um, so that's like another ending. Obviously we have the bad ending. If you don't stop the cannon in time, uh, or we can say yes. And that's, if we have the completion percentage, it puts us on the good or perfect 
quote unquote true whatever you want to call it ending route uh let's let's call it the hundred percent to be clear because if you haven't figured it out yet i have problems with that ending but (laughs) we'll get to those uh what the perfect ending yeah (laughs) okay well we'll get there ken don't worry (laughs) um so Bahamut's like, well, I can't promise you anything, but we'll do what we can. And and they start moving on, and we see some pyreflies and all that. And and we go into an epilogue, which is, I think this is universal across all endings. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Nuge, Barely, and Gipple ag- addressing the public in Lucas Stadium, much like Yuna did at the end of Final Fantasy X. Uh, and they go into a very, very elongated <laughs> metaphor about a ship. <laughs> and... I cannot stress enough that if you think I'm exaggerating this, I promise you I'm not. They keep talking about I was I was on a ship with me as its captain and I became that captain and I found a new ship with new friends and my ship was the Youth League and others chose a different ship and their boat was New Yevon and that ship I captained that ship and but we all like ships and we all want captains and oh god, it just kept going, Ken. It wouldn't like Mm, stop using the metaphor it's too much it's it's just too much they need they need speech writers in spira they really do hey you was excellent them. at the end of 10 yeah you had a great speech a, an incredible orator where maybe maybe you should be the speech teacher <laughs> yeah um but it is a nice cap off because i think it brings these three back together in a very nice way and it also I don't know, like, the ship metaphor does work because the whole idea is that they're like, hey, turns out that the things we were doing were just perpetuating the same problems we had all along, and so we really need to set a good course with all of us working together, and we need to get over our differences, and we're all just going to be cool with each other now. Um, There's some, I mean, fundamental parts about that working that are still kind of would need to be shored up and potentially future things but uh (laughs) in general you know the mood of let's all work together towards a brighter future and not you know keep killing each other is is good and i like that uh even there's there's a point where nuge says like forgive us like Mm -hmm. there there's like an acceptance that they were the ones perpetuating this and they they were responsible yeah yeah yeah. um i like that a lot and the other thing i like um and we don't have to move on to this right away. But I like that Yuna isn't there. That Yuna's just right. like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going to go live my life now. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you have anything you wanted to say about the the boys' speech before we move <laughs> on to the girls? No, I mean, like, on the I mean on the note that you said about, like, how Nude says, like, forgive us. Like, you do think about, like, a lot of the conclusions in Chapter 5. Like, mm-hmm. the, um, you know, the, the issue that everyone's having in Chapter 4 is that their leaders are gone. And now they're all, like, in a frenzy about trying to figure out what to do next. But it's also within their absence that, like, like the end of the the youth league stuff with um, with Lucille, where she's like mm-hmm. speaking to like I don't want to be the version of the youth league that we have been, and it, like she does still say like Nuge is still the person that should be in charge, but like she does outwardly recognize that like the way that they have led it at to this point, maybe maybe possibly perpetuated by these three, um, is not the way forward, and so I guess I liked that acknowledgement from Nuge and also seeing in chapter five, all those characters that were in a frenzy about like what to do without their leaders having come into their own without them. 
and mm-hmm. like not needing their guidance per se and yeah uh yeah so like it, it just kind of feels like the best way to wrap up like what has been, you know, kind of fraught, again, like, we, I brought this up a couple times, like, the centrist politics of Final Fantasy X-2 feels like it works in a vacuum because Spira is not acknowledging how centrist politics are so damaging in the real world because it's actively not, not talking about the, the main part of that that is trying to exist in the center of oppression versus oppressors. And mm. so, yeah, I think, again, in a vacuum, I think Tintu's politics work for Spira, less so than they are more overtly applicable to real world conflicts. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that. And I, in general, I think that they're at a point where they do need to just acknowledge that everyone has to build together and everyone has to take responsibility for what they have done and also be willing to move ahead and forge mm-hmm. ahead and not, not let old wounds keep reopening uh, you know, there, there, there are still reasons for people to have certain beef with each other. I mean, Tramel is an excellent example, mm. but like, it is better for everyone if those who have done wrong acknowledge that they have done wrong and also are able to let go of grievances in order to keep moving forward. And so, uh, I like a lot of the endings to stuff like Guado Salam and, and Mount Gagazette for that reason. And so, yeah, yeah open the world back up and also let Yuna do her own thing. Good mm. Lord. She's earned it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Yuna, we, the boys point out that Yuna is not here. Um, and she just kind of wanted to go home. She, you know, she's done playing the, the leader game and Yuna and Riku and Payne all hop on the ship and head back. And they're all hanging out on top of the ship, flying back home. And she's going higher, higher, faster, faster. Um, they keep flying the airship up and up and up. And, we get uh, Riku joking about how they're missing the party, and Payne says, "We've we've partied enough. We've, we've <laughs> have enough fun." And uh, we cut to <clears throat> we cut to a Yuna monologue where she talks about so much has happened, and I'm sure it's only the beginning. Through the smiles and tears, through the anger and the laughter that follows, I know that I'll keep changing. This is my story. It'll be a good one. It all began when I saw the sphere of you. And I like that. That's a good, it's a good cap off. It's mm. a good ending line. It's a good way to bring it back around. Mm-hmm. And also, this is Yuna's story, damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yuna gets the story. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, as, yeah. as we go into the orchestrated version of A Thousand Words and, you know, they really just hit with the emotions there, I think... Yeah, it could have ended here, and I would have been happy enough. Mm. I, I would have been content there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Same and for the same reasons that I said about the quote-unquote sad ending. Like, I feel like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Th- as, like, Tentu, like, what is the thesis of Tentu can, can be different depending on at what point the story stops. And I think it all still works, which is, you know, interesting for a game that has, like, tiers of endings that are considered canon versus not canon um but uh yeah and you know speaking to that that line about this is my story it'll be a good one i feel like that well let's put a pin in that because i feel like i've got a, a larger <laughs> overarching feeling about how Tentu centers yuna in this yeah, ending yeah that we can talk about when we, we talk about the, the next couple scenes so 
if we have done the right things for the good slash 100%, both of those endings, we we open on Titus uh, floating as he was in the water at the end of 10, uh, the first 10. And he he comes up to the surface and he's at Besaid. Uh He's off the shores of Besaid like he was way back in Final Fantasy X after he got yeeted by Sin. And he starts swimming towards the shore and as he kind of gets up to a place where he can stand up in the water, the Celsius comes in roaring in and the, uh, the bay opens up and Yuna <laughs> comes jumping out and runs to him and they embrace and it's the best. It's so good. <laughs> it's so wonderful. It's so earned. It's mm-hmm. so, Oh, it's very good. It's just uh, joyful. Like I, I don't yeah. know. Like it's the kind, the kind of shit you want to get up and cheer for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's good. It is. I think the effect that these kind of the way they stagger these things out is that you have that moment of, okay, I can be content. You know, I can live with mm-hmm. this. We can move forward with this. And then you see Titus showed up on Besaid, and you're like, no, 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 no. Wait, wait. We can have this. We mm-hmm. can have this. No, I changed my mind. I'm not content. Let's get this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it's. It's just very good. I love that he's back. I love that they embrace and, you know, she's asking if he's real. I think so. And all that. (laughs) Um, And they talk about being home and Rico and Payne are smiling and Waka's like, hey, get a room. And Titus immediately is like, who's asking you to watch? I love it. Like, there's so much about this scene that is very, very good. And Mm -hmm. they're holding hands and they're running in. Um and um, Titus says he notices that that Yuna has changed, and Yuna says, "Well, you missed a few yeah. things while you were gone." And well, and like Titus even like I want to even, hear all about it. Yeah, and even before that, like it starts with like Titus kind of like as he would have intend, like kind of being the one to like guide them as they're like going, and then Yuna mm-hmm. just kind of like struts up in front of him, and is the one pulling him instead, and that's when mm-hmm. he's like, "Oh, you've changed so much." And yeah, again, we're gonna put a pin in like how I think Tentu's ending frames Yuna in this relationship that mm-hmm. and it's just kind of like framing of the ten story that we will ex- extrapolate upon in a minute but well it caps that, uh, off again with yeah. it, it all began when I saw the sphere of you which again is like look they say it twice but it is still a good framing and obviously like sets up that this story and the monologuing was kind of the same framing as uh, Ten had with Titus mm-hmm. Reflecting on the story at the um, at the the fire site in Xanarkand, now we have oh this is probably framed in the idea of Yuna telling Titus about everything that happens, right. uh, and I like this. It's it's very nice. It's it's a good way to end it. It's a good way to cap it all off. Yuna gets to feel like she herself has moved forward and become a new person, but can also still have Titus in her life, right. and. Uh, I, I like this idea because now it feels like it, I like that you pointed out the difference there in Titus leading versus Yuna leading because now it feels like there has been a change between these two but there's still a love between these two mm-hmm. and there's still a lot of excitement and, and new adventure and finally you know Yuna gets to m- move forward while still having the thing that she wanted to hold on right. to dearly and and it's it's a good ending it is a good ending ending right like now she gets to move on and like have like and win in the way that she wanted to like not having to again like i said like she was still beholden to the cycle just in a different way in the end of 10 and i think it's just 
I think that's what elevates 10 to, and, like, broadly, like, 10 as a thing, like, to my favorite Final Fantasy, is that, like, yes, 10 said all it did about, you know, like, uh, sort of, um, you know, breaking a cycle and reclaiming your life, but 10 2 was, like, more the actualization of that, more than it just kind of being this kind of abstract concept that you know is dealing with, and, like, like, a spirit at large is dealing with where they're like, okay, we've rid ourselves of the cycle, but, like, we have to deal with all the damage of it now, and, you know, that's its own, its own journey, and now with Ten Two, just, like, Yuna got to find herself and then mm-hmm. still get to keep the things that were taken from her, like, you know, reclaim that, and, like, she finally wins the life that she wanted to begin with, and that's just why I I get that like a lot of people maybe feel like this is, feels kind of like buyer's remorse on like you know killing off your protagonist, but it's not about Titus, so like it's not really that doesn't feel like the reading to me. It kind of it's about like what Yuna wants and why she wants it and what the entirety of Ten meant for her, like and not you know because like again like that was Titus's story that was like centering him in it and how he felt and. What tend to is like having the person that is left behind having to grapple with it, and yeah, I think that's why ten to do is so special to me. Is like why I have this tattoo. It's like that idea of like you know you have removed yourself from a cycle and from you know a a way of life that you've been taught is the only way, mm-hmm. but now you're getting to you know decide what it means for you to live without that and decide what parts of it are worth preserving and what parts you think you should you know, be able to win back from a system that took it from you. And so to me, that's not even, it, it, I, don't, I don't feel like Tita's coming back undermines 10. Because like, again, I even said, like, I don't think Tita's dying really added much to that game for me. It felt like, it, it felt like a, uh, a twist, of, twist of the knife that I didn't really need. But in its own way, it did, you know, it, it allowed 10 to be about like a certain kind of mm-hmm. reclaiming of your past and, what parts of it matter to you, what parts are worth keeping. And so, yeah, I just, I love this ending a lot, and it just kind of embodies what I love about Tintu. Yeah, and I, I think it's, for reasons I'm about to get into, I like that this one is a neat ending. It's a closed ending. It is them kind of setting everything back and, and putting all the pieces back down and saying, like, the story is over. If we want to pick it back up again later, we could, but there's really no need to. We've, like, hit everything that we need to, and these characters have grown a lot in the process, and there's almost a feeling of, like, I'm reminded of something like Witcher 3's Blood and Wine DLC, which also left Geralt on a very similar note, where this this character's done. This character's hanging up their hat. They're saying, you know, my work here is finished. I'm going to go live my life the way I want to live my life. And we've had plenty of adventures that we're going to share in together and talk about together. But now we get to finally have the respite that we have searched for Mm -hmm. for so long and that we have so duly earned. And I just, I like endings like that. I like it when the hero that has been through so much finally gets some level of peace, even if the peace can feel bittersweet. And that's why I think the other endings, the previous endings for fine Two, is, is like, giving them some level of having moved forward and passed something is mm-hmm. good. Um, so let's talk about the hundred <laughs> um, percent. 
I promise I will get to why I'm framing it like this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so if you get 100% completion, you get one extra scene. That is your big reward for the 100% completion is an extra scene. Uh, Yuna and Titus are at the Xanarkin ruins back at the spot, you know, the spot from, from 10 and from 10 to, and the, the one where Titus tells us that we need to listen to his story and etc. Um, and they're talking with each other and Titus is kind of theorizing about how he came back. You know, it's maybe the faith gathered up all my thoughts and brought them together, or maybe he's still a dream who really knows. And Yuna's like, does that mean you're going to disappear some at some point? Like, are you going to go away again? And he's like, I, I don't know. I have no clue. And Yuna's, and, and so he's like, I'll cherish you and you cherish me. We stick together and that's how we'll get through this. And, and she runs up and, and hugs him, uh, hugs him from behind in the way that Titus did mm. to Yuna, which I think is a very nice symbolic mm. thing. A large, Large portions of this are I, I like and enjoy, to be clear. Um, and I even love that she like then shoves him into mm-hmm. the water, and and uh, he's like, "That's not cherishing." And she's like, "Well, you didn't disappear." And it pans back out. We see Eunice standing in that same spot mm-hmm. that Titus did at the beginning of Final Fantasy X. It's good, symbolic, you know, mm-hmm. circular. You know, bringing it all home. That's all great. I, to be as clear, she said, this is my story. Yes. Um, to be clear, the the text for the most part I like. I like what is happening here. The the one pin I want to bring up, and maybe this is being flavored by the thing, all the things we're going to be talking about in the next episode, is that the one little question of, oh well, you know, could I disappear? Could I go away? I I don't know. I I'm always yeah. uh, I have I've reached a point in my life I think where I'm just. I'm just like, look, just let magic happen. Just be okay <laughs> with magic. Just don't don't ask questions. I, You don't need to explain it. The faith were like, yeah, we can bring him back. And you know what? You don't need to come up with some science-y, fancy reason for the, the how and the what and the why of how that happens. We, you are in a world where a small ghost child also represents a giant dragon that shoots mega flare out of its mouth. We do not need like dissertations on how Titus could have been brought back in the, in the world. Okay. Like that, that's maybe like one my, my big reason why I don't like the hundred percent ending is because it puts that pin there. And so now that then leads into my number two reason, which is probably a reason that you are also frustrated about the next episode we're going to do, which is like, what if they continued to expand mm. on that idea of how did Titus come back? And right. could that be a problem? And I think that so knowing that that stuff was coming, this kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I was like, Oh, this is the Marvel credit stinger of what could happen in the next time. And I know that intention might not have been there to do right. that. Um, and, and I, I, I really do like the parts of them saying, you know what? Just like screw all that. We're just going to cherish each other in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what's going to matter. I like how it resolves that. And I especially like, you know, standing in that spot. It's just, right. it's very good. And it's also like they had established that well in the course of the game, if you were doing 100% of her like being very, she cares a lot about that part of Xanarkand in particular. Mm-hmm. She has that line about, I never want to see anyone else stand there. Right. And 
I think that brings it all home in a good way. So it's it's just yeah. Mm, so mm. I am I'm of a couple minds. One, I to me this scene, the specifics of what are what said are less important than the imagery they were trying to capture of Eunice standing in that spot. I think because yeah. yeah. I, I think like it's That's just. Fair. The conversation, I don't think it was ever meant to be, like, any sort of, like, lingering question. of the, I, I, To me, that felt like Titus and Eunice kind of, like, after, you know, Eunice told her story, like, eventually, at some point, they were probably going to start thinking about, like, how did I come back? What's, what, you know, what is the nature of my being back? And I don't think that was, that, you know, 19 years ago, I don't think that was ever actually meant to really be anything more than just a conversation that they were, ha- that they, that they were having. And, um... Like, again, like, I think the the core part of that scene that is notable is that Yuna now stands in that spot. And that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that feels in line with, you know, the sort of reclaiming she has of, like, the, the phrase, like, this is my story. Because I think, like, even uh, the larger stuff about, like, whether she just was, like, a light protagonist or not, I do think, by and large, Tenant and Two are Yuna's story. And I think t- a lot of Ten Two is kind of, like, her acknowledging that and also square acknowledging that um in a way that kind of uh like i think they were doing in like very overt ways like this scene um but yeah like everything about 10 and 10 to like suddenly has this cloud hanging over it of like because like i mean we can kind of talk i think broadly about how we felt about 10 to and kind of the games of this uh this season this year-long fucking retrospective that we've been on um <laughs> Because I do think, like, ten and two, like I said before, like, I think Ten and Ten to know themselves so well in a way that I don't think Final Fantasy does anymore, and a lot of that comes down to, I feel like Square Enix is, is diluting what each of these games, like, means in every spinoff and remake and, like, crossover that they put out, like, where, in a vacuum, I think Ten and Ten to just, like, they tell, like, this really, like, kind of stunning arc of a universe as well as a character at its center. And so for me, like, you know, all the things that we've talked about, like, this sort of overarching narrative of, like, this world being in a cycle taught to it through tradition and, like, being told this is how things have to be, this is the only way that things can ever be. And then with Tentu being like, okay, we've learned that that's not the case. Who are we now? Who are we after we have removed ourselves from situations and cycles and people that have kept us in this very, like static spot in our lives like who do we become when we are no longer beholden to these things all that's like really perfectly encapsulated in two games in a way that final fantasy just doesn't fucking seem to have the capacity to do anymore because everything has to be like this huge fucking extended universe that has like ties to other games that they think are silly and fun but then like become actual plot points in a fucking encyclopedia book they put out or in a remake series that is all about like kind of trying to decide, like, not to be the thing that they were, like, if, if you put me on another fucking podcast about Final Fantasy VII Remake, after <laughs> everything that's happened with Ten, I might fucking blow a gasket. But, conceptually, like, Ten and Ten Two are some of, the, like, the most concise, well-understood storytelling that Final Fantasy has ever had. And its understanding of itself in, in its systems, and, like, its unapologetically understanding the systems, like, in the way that, like, you know, 10 is always called a hallway game, but, like, if you're actually, like, invested in paying attention to the story, you see why it is that way. 10-2 is, you know, reactionary in some ways, because it has this huge open structure, you know, for, for a time it was huge, um, this open structure, and, like, it's all about, like, finding 
your own path through this world in like a new context and you know all of those things weaving together like the narrative and the game design like all coming together in a way that Final Fantasy just doesn't do anymore like that is what's like my like you know I, I have my you know the more minute things that I love about Tenet and Two that I've talked about you know throughout this these podcasts but just like broadly that is my the thing I come away from Tenet is like it is so perfect as is mm. like all the things we talk about, like, you know, you know, there are various problems that we've had with both of these games as we've been going through, but just, like, conceptually, it's perfect. It's, like, it, it, it deserves to be pristine. I don't want a Final Fantasy X remake or a ten three to come in and just, like, like, knock it off the shelf to put something new up there because it thinks that it needs to be iterated on because it fucking doesn't. Like, it, like, let, it's perfect. Me... Yeah, jump in, jump in. Yeah, yeah, so... I want, to, I want to hit a few things. Number one, the, the stuff about Remake, I agree with you. I do think that... I think Square Enix, at least in a post-10 capacity, started to run into a lot of troubles about what it wanted Final Fantasy to be moving mm-hmm. forward. And I think that's also... Funny, funnily enough, I just... As we are recording this, I just recorded uh, an episode of Acts of the Blood God where we were talking about how we were doing PC RPGs of the 2000s, right? And how much RPGs changed in that time span. And this is an RPG of the 2000s, but I think it is an RPG that exists before a major changing point. And that changing point is stuff like World of Warcraft, where RPGs went from being this thing that was a slice of the pie to being a thing that could constitute the whole pie if you wanted it to. And I see some of the ways that as RPGs changed in a post world of Warcraft world, I see some of that in final fantasy as well, where suddenly it wasn't always enough to just have a discrete singular RPG. Suddenly this RPG had to encompass so much more. It had to be able to accommodate so much more. I think probably 12 was the last one they did that felt like it was a standalone entry. And even 13, maybe you could have argued, but then 13 got turned into a mm. trilogy series. Um, and this is not a commentary on the quality of the trilogy series or anything like that. But this is me saying, like, the what Final Fantasy was before that era and now is is very different. Yeah, you know, I mean, Final like... Fantasy was once a... We are having singular entries that stand alone that honestly are like blockbusters for their time, but they were standalone RPGs. Mm. They, they came out and they were this big deal that this is the new final fantasy. Like Uh, for, for all my love of the 13 trilogy, they are very emblematic of like a shift in Square Enix and mm a sort of like lack of direction for the franchise at large. Yeah. Yeah. And to I, I will say to remakes credit, and I'm not going to give it all credit because I do think there are problems with Seven Remake that I have, and that if we ever did a Normandy FM, you know Ken would probably kill someone. But <laughs> it's, um, we'd have to wait until the whole darn thing is finished mm-hmm. too, and that's another one of the problems with Seven Remake. But uh, it's I do like that it at least tries to cope with the fact that final fantasy seven is such a different thing from what RPGs are now. Mm -hmm. And that there is some necessity to address that if you are going to remake seven. And I, I almost feel like 
I like that game a lot, and I, because I think it is a game that at least grapples with that conversation in its text, and so that's why I like it. But for that same reason, and this is the only reason why I bring that up, I would not want Final Fantasy X Remake mm-hmm. to do that. Because A, I don't think it could handle the same stuff in the same way. I don't like I love Ten, but I don't think Ten had the same cultural impact that Seven did. I don't think, frankly, most RPGs have mm-hmm. had the same cultural impact that Final Fantasy Seven did. Um, and also, I don't think Ten is the right format to handle that either. Um, I think it it still stands up. It still holds up as its own story, its own discrete RPG that. Uh, ends up being two halves of a whole, I think, even though you could play 10 and be content that way. I do think that you would benefit a lot from 10 2 playing it as well, kind of seeing that story come to a full circle in a way. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree that this is, this is square of a different era, but then also 10 slowly becomes, as we will talk about in the next episode, sub- subject to the problems of, larger expansion of the final mm-hmm. fantasy universe and and to square's credit i don't think they've always done this wrong i think like 15 in particular is an example of this done poorly because of both development hell and the way it was split up into different dlcs and things like that that only ever mm-hmm. got brought together at the end and even then it didn't have everything it was supposed to have by the right. end um the very infamous stream of them saying hey we're not going to deliver all this stuff it's just not happening um but then you look at something like final fantasy 14 which is big and sprawling and massive but still delivers like high points of final fantasy storytelling and uh you can see the the ways in which they have tried to to deal with that over the years and that largely comes down to the talent within the company and who's working on what but um to bring it on back around to 10 and 10 2 I, I still think for me, 10 is my favorite because 10 just holds that spot in my heart. Like 10 is that game to mm-hmm. me. It's the one that got me, honestly, it was the RPG that got me hooked on RPGs. It was this this story that just, it is, I hate calling it a comfort food because that feels like when you, when you say something is a comfort food, it almost feels like you're saying it's not cuisine. And I do think 10 right. is a very well-made game. It just also is something that I feel like most other games, when we're done with them for, for Normandy, I'm like, cool, I want to take a break. I, I don't want to come back to this game for at least like a year. And I feel that way about 10 too. I don't feel that way about Final Fantasy 10. I feel like mm-hmm. I could start another playthrough of Final Fantasy 10. And that that is probably because it feels so familiar and, and at home to me. But there's something about its its road trip and its progression mm. and its characters that just feel wonderful to me and feel like indicative of everything I like about role playing games. But contrast that with Final Fantasy X two is everything I like about how role playing games can examine what they are and evolve and do mm-hmm. things differently and completely shift themselves around and just really put different perspectives on things and tackle stories in a more interesting way. I've lamented before that I wish fewer RPGs were about killing God and were maybe more about things like, uh, you know, Yakuza like a dragon is a good example where that's just an RPG about crime and shit. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I kind of love the idea of 10 being this game that is you're dealing with a Spira ending threat, but you're also mostly dealing with making the world a better place 
dealing with the politics of the land, but also dealing with a lot of Yuna and Riku and Payne's problems and, and getting through some of those. And a lot of the fantasy battle stuff is just backdrop for all that. Mm. And so I like Tentu a lot for that reason. Uh, and I've had a lot of gripes with its structure and with the completion stuff and all that. This is where I get to say my big thing is that I think completion and endings should be completely separate from each other. I think the ending should have just been gated behind certain things happening and not having to do every single thing in the completion. If you still want to have a completion percentage that's like you've seen every scene in the game or something like that, go for it. But I think tying the specific ending mm. scene to the 100% was a mistake, and I would change that if I was going mm. to remaster this game. I would say that maybe there's you don't have to do every completion, but maybe you do need to do the Moogle stuff and Luca and stuff like that to get that final scene and get mm. that final takeaway. You make sure you do all the making stuff and all that, but you don't have to go like, you don't have to go find Yuna at the beginning of the game in the Mog suit. And you don't have to do all this other completion stuff. That's like mm. very strict and very restrictive. You don't have to do the end game stuff like the cactuars and mm. the, the Jose machine fight that has nothing to do with the lore of the story. Like lock it behind some things, but don't lock it behind everything. Mm. That's I've said my piece now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and like to touch on that, like that structure does feel very emblematic of like a game that is meant to be, replayed and i think we, we talked about this i think maybe in like the jade empire season like games that are out now like not, not talking about like live service games like talking like more like rpgs and stuff are not meant to be replayed in the way that they mm. were 20 mm -hmm. years ago they were they don't gate things by like time having passed because they want people to be able to do everything on the map like to you know without being you know gated by anything and that is, a, a, you know, in one way that, like, Tensu is very of its time, and I think, like, if that game were, you know, remade or re whatever, like, if that game were out today, it would be structured differently, I think, and, yeah, yeah. um, and I don't know, and again, I don't think, like, the completion would be what unlocked those other endings, I think it would be, like, very specific quests or something that you would need to go do that would be the things that basically unlock different tiers of endings, and, right. you know, again, like, that is... I, in in a duology that I think has aged, like, very well. And I think, like, honestly, of all the games that we have played for Normandy FM, I think they are the most timeless because, like, they are 20 years old at this point. And mm -hmm. I, I would say, mechanically, they yeah, are yeah. all probably better at what they do than the other games that we have done are at what they do. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah, to the point where I, like, you know... We even talked about this very recently with Mass Effect Legendary Edition, like the first Mass Effect game, Did not aged well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think as great as the shooting mechanics are of Mass Effect 2 and 3, I think that we will get to a point where those games feel old. Yeah, and even things like Last of Us Part 2, which was very modern still at this point and still I think is some of the most interesting combat we've had in just the nuances. Mm -hmm. But there will probably be evolutions. But the virtue of something like a turn-based role-playing game system is that it can evolve in different ways, but this will still remain like of its time, a very good version of itself. Mm -hmm. um, Cause there's really not evolution in the same way that we've seen in action genres and things like that. Yeah. Uh, also bears to your point about length. Uh, this was a shorter game than 10. Yeah. Like, I, I closed out at probably about 26 hours or so. It did not take me long. Yeah. 
and, overall to see the end of this game. And the interesting thing is, like, we didn't, like, we did, you know, there were things we did not do, but in terms of, like, the time investment of the, of the section specifically that we did not do, it's maybe, like, another five to eight hours, I'd say, but the actual, like, thing that would add on to the playtime would be the grinding to get to those yes. things, which yeah. would have been, because, I mean, by the time that this game ends, like, most times that I play it, you know, straight the the first time without like doing a new game plus my character is usually like in the late 40s mid 50s max mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so like imagine just like the playtime of that probably there'd be like another like 10 to 15 hours i think of just gr- like just straight grinding to get them to level 99 yeah because like you gotta yeah. take into account like with the playtime that we have now that's all the cutscenes and all the traveling from place to place but like if you were to like sit down in like a dungeon and just grind like doing right. nothing else that right. would be like you know a uh, Another 10 to 15 hours on top of all that. It's probably, like, half as long as 10 was for me, um, just getting through to... I mean, even 10... I I don't think I ever checked my final 10-hour count, but it was when they did the the year-end roundup for PlayStation. Final Fantasy X was one of my most played games of the year, and I played Mm. a lot of games on PlayStation, so that that says something to that. But uh, it's... It is it is a smaller game by all accounts, um, but I think it uses that to its advantage. You know, we talked earlier about how it kind of starts you out with a lot of different enemies that were end game enemies in Final Fantasy X, and says like, "Here, just fight them. You know how to fight them. You know mm-hmm. how to deal with this. Like, go for it." And the girls feel like they level up pretty fast, and it starts to become more about getting jobs to the the places that you want and having the right accessories rather than... I mean, levels help, but they aren't, like, the main determining factor the way that sphere levels are in mm-hmm. uh, Final Fantasy X. So, yeah. I think overall this is just a duology that stands up. I mean, the the 10 to dual pack is probably some of the best bang for your buck around Absolutely. for an RPG. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that that exists. I'm glad that that is exists and is on many modern platforms mm-hmm. and I think it's on I, everything now at this point. Yeah. It's on switch. It's on, I was playing on PS five via my PS four physical copy. Cause I got the like collector's edition when it came out mm-hmm. and all that. Um, but it's on switch. It's on PC, um, all kinds of stuff out there. And I do think if I was going to recommend to someone to play a Final Fantasy, this 10 would be one I would point them towards. Mm-hmm. It's it's one, I we talked about this at the end of 10 as well, but it's one that I think has not only stood the test of time and still is a good story and still has a great pace to it and is very understandable even to a non-role-playing game fantasy, like person, someone who's not familiar with that stuff. I think it's just darn good. And it's mm-hmm. it bums me out that in the pantheon of final fantasy games it feels a bit underrated and to be granted like there are a lot of good final fantasy games like you'd be hard pressed to find bad final fantasy games there's maybe only a handful that i would say are actively bad otherwise like final fantasy is a pretty high bar for its mainline series Mm. but uh yeah 10 10 holds up 10's pretty darn good 10 2 is pretty darn good too um some might say it's the best Final Fantasy. <laughs> I'm not among them, but there is another one in this room, so <laughs> it's a 50-50 split on that. We do have one more episode to go, though. That'll mm. be the next episode, where turns out they just couldn't leave every stone unturned, and we've really just had to drudge this back up, and we're going to talk about all the things that are 
the extended 10 universe. Um, oh boy, it's going to be a great episode, y'all. <laughs> um, before we get there, we are Normandy FM. We are a retrospective podcast that has covered everything from Mass Effect and Dragon Age up through The Last of Us, Jade Empire, and the Final Fantasy X series, and very soon Cyberpunk 2077. We are in the planning stages for that right now. Very excited. We're almost there. And as always, you can back us at patreon.com slash normdfm. Any amount back there will get you into our backer discord where you can hang out, get updates, and talk with other fans of the show. At the next level up, you get these episodes as soon as Ken is done editing them, faster than the free feed is getting them, and... At the highest level, you get your name shouted out on every episode. And this episode, that list is just Mercedes Cluis, Meredith, Micah Mante, and Shane Erickson. Thank you all so much for contributing. Y'all make it easy to keep the lights on and do what we do here. If you don't want to financially back us, that's okay. We get it. We understand. If you like what you heard, if you like what you've you've seen, if you want to argue with us, we don't care. Just leave us a five star <laughs> review <laughs> and and share it around because that's how we get more ears on the podcast. And at the end of the day, that's really what we want is just more people to engage with, especially as we go into a new season. So we are yeah. pushing that a little bit more. So yeah. and I want to say, um, like, I mean, this is we're ostensibly at the end of the tennis season, and I don't know, like, the we, true we, end of the ten season. Yeah, yeah, we don't really talk about this much, but like the turnout for the 10th season has been the highest we've had since Mass Effect. And so thank y'all for tuning in and being here and being consistent because there are a lot of you and that's frightening. (laughs) We love, we love that y'all listening. uh, Y'all love listening. Talk to us about, about Final Fantasy. It's great uh, to hear us. (laughs) Those who have stuck it out for what is almost now three hours of Ken and I rambling about 10 to thank you for sticking around. Uh, we will see you next time, I guess, for 10-2 Last Mission, 10-2.5, part one and part uh, two. And 